TV Mayhem show is back after a short hiatus and I'm super excited. That music actually is coming from my heart. That actually came from nothing else but my heart. That's how happy I am. Okay, it actually came from the movie She's Dressed to Kill, which is one of the movies we're going to be discussing tonight. Our topic is uh, small screen proto slashers. Um, you might also want to call them small screen giallos, but we're just going to put them in the proto slasher camp just to keep it easy. And I am here again with my two friends. I feel like we got the band back together, so I'm really excited. So let's just get started with our intros. Again, my name is Amanda. Um, this is the Made for TV Mayhem show, and I am here with my good friend Dan. How's it going, Dan? Great. I, I'm excited. I love both of these movies. They're they're a hoot. And it's been I feel it's been so long since we've talked TV movies. I'm ready. I'm I'm effusive. I'm I'm bubbling. I'm ready to go. Wow. Wow. That was a big word, effusive. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Is this gonna be is this gonna be a podcast with really big words that alienates all of our listeners? <laughs> no, no. We're gonna keep it simple. Good. Keep okay. it simple. All right. Maybe some truck driver movie, language. Movie good. <laughs> movie good. Dress is bad. Murder bad. Oh, okay. Murder bad. <laughs> and I'm also here with my good friend Nathan. How are you, Nate? Um, excellent. I'm looking forward to talking about these films. I'm very paleontology <laughs> about it. As we all are. We all are. We're all fossils of the television <laughs> film residue that floats through the cosmos. <laughs> and we're using the fossil fuels. To keep us going through this evening. So <laughs> I think that made sense. Maybe. Um, I think so. I actually just talked to Nate a couple weeks ago. I was a guest on um, his excellent podcast, The Hysterian Continues, where we talked about Don't Go to Sleep. Now, there's been a lot of stuff that's been happening between the last time we spoke when um, we were speaking only of love about Tori Spelling to tonight where we're going to speak only of love about these really amazing little films. Um, so... Uh, I'm going to be posting links to certain things on uh, our on the blog page for this uh, podcast in case anybody's interested in checking out um, some interviews I've done. It hasn't been much uh, since I got back, but I was in London. I'm just going to make this part very brief, um, but I know people might be interested in the presentation I gave there. So I spoke uh, last month in London at the uh, Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, which was founded by Kayla Janice, who was one of the presenters there with me. Um, we had a third speaker named Jennifer Wallace. She's a contributor to the book that I wrote called Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, as well as Kayla, who is also a contributor. And we got together and did a, basically a three-hour lecture on all these different facets of the telefilm. And I'm starting with this because I spoke about both the movies we're talking about tonight briefly. So I'm going to go ahead and just do a little overview of the uh, my trip to London because I want to uh, say thank you to all the people who came to see me. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the presentation, and then we'll move into the film proper. So um, I guess the best part of my trip, and as I've told everybody, it was a little bit of an emotional roller coaster ride because um, a bunch of people came to see me, and 
they would come only for like a day and for that entire day they were mine and I loved it I possessed them and I could spend all my time with them and we drank and had laughs and then by morning they were gone and so there was and then that day would just be sometimes me by myself and so there was a lot of emotion on my trip it was by far I loved going to Australia and Australia is very close to my heart, but this was one of the most incredible experiences I ever had, um, including the public speaking I did because I've never done anything like that. So uh, I'll just briefly say that uh, the night of the talk, I got visited by two of my favorite podcasters. That's uh, Chris Brown, who does the Last Horror Podcast. Um, he interviewed me, and I can post a link to that as well. Chris and I have a really interesting friendship uh, in that I've known about him for years and for years he terrified me. He used to do a video nasties podcast and um, he would get so passionate about the topic that I thought this guy's dark. And then one day I was talking to Chris Clayton from the Strange and Deadly show and asking him about video nasties and he said you should contact Chris Brown. So I did and Chris Brown was just like the sweetest guy. And um and he has a new podcast now called the Last Horror Movie Podcast, Last Horror Film Podcast, I'm sorry. And uh it's really, really good. It's it's every subject of horror you could think of, and he discusses it. And so he came out from Liverpool with his wife, Laura, who was also an incredible person, and it was really great to meet them. Um, I guess, though, the highlight of that night was meeting Tom Elliott from The Strange and Deadly Show, because if anybody listens to the back catalog of this show, um, I basically, like love the strange and deadly show so it was really exciting that tom could make the trip out they both came from liverpool um to come see the talk and he is as charming and as funny as you think he's going to be he's really fucking good looking like it blew my mind how hot he was um and it, but, on, but on top of that he was like a really really nice guy and it was so great to meet him and chris and I think they liked the talk. They both said they did. We didn't talk that much about it because I think I was so nervous that when it was over, it was almost like I didn't want to talk about it anymore. Um, and I'll go into the breakdown, but um, that was the highlight of after the talk was meeting those two men, and I want to thank them for coming out. And then a day went by where we just sort of wandered London, and um, and then on Saturday, Justin and Eric from uh, The Hysteria Continues came to visit as well as uh, my good friend Gore Blimey, who has an amazing podcast called The Trilogy of Terror Podcast. And that was a really incredible visit, too. So we had people coming from Wales and Bristol and Ireland, so all over Europe, right? And they came early in the day, and we spent all day basically drinking. And it was so much fun talking about Friday the 13th and talking about having sex with Jason Voorhees, which, yes, I did because I had a couple too many drinks, and just uh, chatting with everybody and getting to know them and telling Justin I was in love with him and him telling me I needed a penis. Um, and the heartbreak was there, but it was worth it. And um, it was really nice of them to come from all over the place to see me. And then, of course, by Sunday, they were gone. And then I was on my own for a couple of days. Um, my husband actually flew back to the States. And um, the last two days were really kind of thrilling for me, being in a country by myself where I knew nobody. Um, it was such an amazing trip. And I have to thank Kayla for inviting me to come out to present with her and Jennifer on um, the topic of made-for-TV movies. So I was given an hour-and-a-half platform, and I developed a PowerPoint presentation, and I went over dozens of films. It was really difficult to figure out what to do, and I changed my presentation about two weeks before it was due. Like, I erased it and started all over again because I feel like 
there's so many things to talk about, but what I think is so important is that if you if anybody's interested in TV movies, it's really easy to Google made for television films, and you're gonna get top ten lists, right? And all those top ten lists are gonna have Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, Duel, maybe Don't Go to Sleep, um, you know, Saints Go for Girls, perhaps. And so I wanted to go really deep, and so I tried to go with more obscure titles. Um, one of them being She's Dressed to Kill and the other one being Five Desperate Women. But I also did um, like The House That Wouldn't Die, which isn't necessarily super obscure. This House Possessed, of course, because it's my favorite. I did The Haunted from 1991. Now it's hard for me to remember all those movies I had memorized. Oh, and I can't even like remember any of them. The Intruder Within, um, I discussed briefly. We talked a lot about how these movies take place within the domestic and how you're watching the movies in the space of the domestic. But... Um, if anybody's interested in the films I covered, I posted a list of them on my blog, which I'll post a link to on the podcast's uh, webpage. If uh, you want to check out, um, it's like 30 or so titles probably. I also did some clip reels, one of which I didn't have time to show, so I put it up on YouTube and I have a link to that and you can watch those clips if you want. And one slide I talked about how TV movies, because there was so many of them and there was such a, oh, what do I want to say? It, it was like overflowing with content in the 70s so the networks were looking at sort of every type of film that they could sort of mimic and so we saw a lot of different types of genre films and proto slashers were kind of prominent back then now she's dressed to kill sort of falls in that gray area where it could be technically a slasher but i think it was influenced more by the giallo and less so by something like halloween so i'm keeping it in the early days of tv in my mind and the thing that stood out to me about them, not so much that they're proto-slashers, and we can break down if you want what a proto-slasher is, and that's a good question because I wasn't able to answer that. Somebody recently asked me that in an interview, and I couldn't answer it because I think that it varies by person. And I know when I listen to this story, continues, there's a lot of conversation about that. Is it because it has stalking scenes? Does it have this? Is there like a mass killer? Um, and so... I'm qualifying these because they feel like they're not exactly as blueprint specific as something like Home for the Holidays, which feels just like a slasher film, but they do have those stalking elements. They do have murder in them, um, you know, uh, desolate locations. They have a lot of that. Um, they even sort of have final girl characters, although I would say that they're vastly different than what we're used to, and we can discuss that later as well. But what stood out to me most about proto-slashers of this era and going into the 80s was that these are essentially female ensemble casts. And I'm not saying that slasher films didn't have that. Certainly they did. Slumber Party Massacre did. But it was really interesting the way the dynamic worked in movies like She's Dressed to Kill and Home for the Holidays in particular, where these movies were about women and women's problems and women's issues that were meant to reach other women because the uh, most uh, highly sought after demographic in television was the female audience. So these were generated to get women interested in their films. And so what we get here in something like Home for the Holidays or She's Dressed to Kill, not so much in She's Dressed to Kill, I guess Five Deaths for Women, is we get complexity. And we'll probably be discussing some of that tonight. I am almost positive we will be discussing this at length. He was a good little doggy. Isn't he like me? So, uh, and just to go back a little briefly, um, I know I've been talking a lot, but I saw Five Desperate Women when I was a very little kid. And all I remembered about it was a beach 
and a dog getting killed and a woman being strangled. And for years, I hunted this film down and I only came across it by accident when I was like on eBay, when eBay used to sell bootlegs and somebody put a description up of this film, which was just a dub. And it sounded sort of like the movie I had remembered from my childhood. So I ordered it. It was like 20 bucks and it came in the mail and I watched it. And that line you just heard there, I remembered word for word. I actually said it as she said it rewatching the film it had such an impact on me i think because and we'll do the breakdown and we can discuss this later but that particular character doesn't make it through the film and her death really upset me when i was a little kid because her life seemed so sad and um it just really affected me now watching it as an adult it doesn't have the same impact but there's always this sense of like sadness that is carried through the film um, even through to the end song, which I'm going to play at the end of this podcast. So I'm going to let Dan take it over here. I hope that was coherent, my yeah. <laughs> miskatonic talk. Um, and uh, and let's just get started. Go, Dan. Here I go. Uh, so the movie is about five uh, college friends. Lucy, who's played by Anjanette Comer, 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 Comer uh, Dorian, Joan Hackett, Joy, Denise Nicholas, Gloria, Stephanie Powers, and Mary Grace, Julie Summers, with an A. And they are getting together for a five-year college reunion, and they are going to a lovely deserted island with a, uh, they call it a mansion, but it just looks like a big house to me. And they're going out there. And they're going to hang out and they're going to have a good time and drink and talk and about old times and new times and catch up. What they don't know is that at the start of the movie, a crazy man broke out of what well, it says infirmary, but out of a nut house. And this is a man who killed his fiance right before their wedding. And this man's name was Ray Carlton. No, it wasn't. That's a joke. But um, this man makes it to the island. He steals a rowboat, makes it to the island, and we see over the opening credits him killing a man on the island. So the gals arrive, and they're hanging out. They're having a good time. They meet a dog, a very nice dog. They meet the caretaker, who's played by a gentleman named Wiley, played by Robert Conrad. They meet the, well, they've already met the uh, the guy who pilots the boat. I won't call him a captain. Uh, Meeker, played by Bradford Dillman. And they meet this cute little dog who the character of Dorian, played by Joan Hackett, really falls for. And they hang out and they talk and chat. And sometimes it gets a little heated. And sometimes they're just out playing grab ass out on the beach, having a good time. And... The killer can't control himself, and eventually he ends up killing the dog. Soon after that, he eventually ends up killing one of the women. And the five desperate women become four. <laughs> Will the killer get all of them before they find out who he is and stop him? And who is he? Could he be Wiley? Could he be Meeker? Could he be someone else hiding on the island? Could one of the women be unhinged? Tune into Five Desperate Women and find out. Wow! I just kept I just kept it calm on this one. I didn't want to go too <laughs> overboard because I figure I figure we'll talk about all the women in detail. So so. So Dan, why don't you tell us what you thought of it? Yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> I, I really like uh, Five Desperate Women. I first saw it uh, about two years ago. I actually found some emails. I, I sent you an email like two years ago, and I was. Um, I had a time where I was w- watching horror movies in a weird way, where I started watching them. I would 
go from 1970 to 1990 and I would pick one film a year. I'd try to pick something I hadn't seen. And then when I get to 1990, I'd expand to like 1969 to 1991. And like the third or fourth time I did this, which was about two years ago, uh, for 1971, I watched Five Desperate Women. And I emailed you about it. And uh, and apparently I talked about it a lot because you posted something on Twitter or somewhere that said something like, oh, Dan's been talking about it all week. Who's your favorite desperate woman? And I chose um, uh, I chose uh, Mary Grace, Julie Samars sure. at that time. I, I don't know if I feel different about it now, um, but I, I really think it's a great time. I think yeah, um, being a being a proto slasher, it, it does that thing that all proto slashers do where portions of it are very slashery and portions of it are not at all. So the first the first 40 or so minutes are we get sort of the point of view of the killer as he kills this guy on the beach and we get the five women assembling and we get the dog getting killed and but then once they find the body of the first woman who's been killed the last half hour I don't think is a slasher at all it's more like a sort of survival kind of thing because the four women are pretty smart and they lock themselves inside the house and won't let the two guys in and it sort of becomes, you know, trying to figure out who the which of the two guys is the killer. If it is one of the two guys, we'll spoil that in a couple of minutes. But I want to lead people on for as long as I can. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's very good. The funny thing is, the first time I watched it, I I, I don't know why, but a, a, I just sort of didn't quite get the sort of uh, camp element of it, which I don't I don't know if it was really there when it aired. But no. the second time I it here there were certain things like some of Joan Hackett's performance like her her talking about the dog um and um uh uh, uh Stephanie Powers hair which i find very <laughs> Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. And just 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 some some and things like i know we will talk about Robert Conrad's butt at one point. But i have become more of an expert on on his behind than i realized and that <laughs> might be a sport. Yeah, well, you know what? A spoiler about the feedback. It's I think only a couple of people wrote about the movie proper. We did get a really lot of nice feedback tonight, but um, Robert Conrad's body parts came up quite a bit, and <laughs> in my notes, even, um, you know, when I think of Robert Conrad, I think of his ass, and I think that's because yeah. he has it in his contract that his pants have to be three sizes too small. Yes. For every yeah. every movie role he's in, and I'm not complaining about that at all. No, he looks good. He looks good. But the thing about, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but the thing about the film is that there's some tricks in there because I can tell in some scenes it's not Robert Conrad because he's mm-hmm. got Bradford Dillman's build, another build which I've memorized by the way, <laughs> um, because he's very handsome. But um, like, it, there's a scene where where it's obviously not Robert Conrad's ass, but it's supposed mm, to be the killer. And I'm like, I feel like it's when he kills the dog. Oh, that could be it. Yeah. Cause I was going to say when he kills the guy on the beach, I was like, Hey, that, ro- Oh, spoiler. That's Robert. Conrad's oh yeah. Oops. Ass. Yeah. I guess we already spoiled it, but, but... <laughs> like you were not going to lead him on, but then I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. It's because we start talking about Robert Conrad's ass. And then, you know what? He's true. His ass is true serum. You like go near that thing and you can't lie about a thing because it, everything becomes rainbows and unicorns and beautiful. You know what I mean? I'm a, 
I, I'm a huge Battle of the Network Stars fan, and he's on about five or six of those, and he's always going around just in little shorts. That's right. And it's like you, you can't not see his behind. Yeah, he loves it. So. And, and you know, and I'm be kind of joking about, like, I mean, he does obviously have a very great physique, and, and he showed it off. I'm joking, but his pants were always really tight, and it stood out to me because no matter what film he's in, or that Columbo <laughs> episode he did in particular, where he yes. actually plays a fitness yeah. guy, um, mm-hmm. it's like, can he breathe? <laughs> It's really squeezing the cheeks back there. He wow. is. But anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go on. It's 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 lovely because it is it's 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 got the a great early seventies feel to it and it does it. It's it's one of those things where I, I can't quite figure out when I watch it because there really are only two suspects. And I can't figure out whether when they originally showed it, if people would have sat there and gone, okay, it's one of those two guys, or whether they would have sort of expanded, like, could there be someone else there? Could it be one of the women doing something? Or whether they were just, people would have just said, okay, it's one of those two guys. Because in the last half hour, like I mentioned, it really does become a, we lock ourselves in the house and we don't allow the two guys in. And the two guys are both, it's kind of interesting because you get like the two guys, they just look at each other and go, you're the killer. No, you're the killer. I'm going to go out for a walk. No, you're not killer. Stay here. Shut up, killer. I'm going, you know, and it's, it's, <laughs> they, they go on like that. Uh, the, the great thing about it is that, well, one of the things I really liked is that when the women are deciding who the killer is, they all decide it's Bradford Dillman, except for Lucy and, and Jeanette Comer. Comer. Um, she says, no, it's Wiley. Why? Because he's so nice or he's so amiable. Or something like that. And I think that's one of the rules, isn't it? That you like you look towards the most amiable person, and they're usually the killer. You know what? That really works with her character too, because and we'll talk about these women, but you know she's an alcoholic, and we can play. Mm-hmm. The, I got a clip of her talking about drinking, but I didn't get the whole part where she talks about where she lives and how her husband is like the like the biggest zombie in town. Like she calls them all dead, but they don't know it. This the people she lives in town with, and um. I kind of feel like maybe the fact that she has this husband that I think is like prominent in the in town and well liked, but I, they have a horrible relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah. That she kind well, of can she, see that. Yeah. Well, she doesn't. She in a couple of years she becomes a social worker and she, she does. Uh, her husband, her husband yeah. has an accident and she becomes a social worker and yes, this tries was, to help. Uh, this was done by the same director. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's interesting because this is like uh, early Anjanette and Ted Post work. So it's kind of fun to watch it, and it's a completely different mm-hmm. performance. Yes, it really is. Yeah, yeah. she's very Southern Belle in it. Yeah, Southern great. Belle. Slightly, slightly racist Southern Belle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's she my is. favorite. Is she? <laughs> yes. Why? I love her character in this movie. I don't know why. She just. Uh, I think it's because she made me laugh. I'm such a pinky. Well, I, I really liked. I really liked her uh, performance, and of course, I absolutely love the baby. So, I mean, I love everybody oh, sure. involved yeah. with the baby. So she kind of mm-hmm. had that going for her as well. So, Nate, what do you think of this movie? Uh, I highly love this movie. <laughs> highly, um, because I watched it the first time I saw it, it was when I was a, a little kid, um, and it was in the TV guide airing at like two a.m. That night, so I knew I couldn't stay up and watch it, but um, I, I programmed my VCR to record it. So that's the first time I've got to see uh, this movie. Now, when I first saw it, I was probably probably a little disappointed because you know at that point in time I'm loving you know the slasher movies and the Friday the Thirteenth and stuff, and I see this 
movie about, you know, five women trapped on an island with a killer and, you know, and semi-spoilers, but, you know, I mean, it doesn't have a big body count. Um, you know, most of the women actually survive. Um, and then <laughs> I love the final battle at the end because there's just something that's, to me, kind of funny about, you know, the fact that he's strangling one and the other women are off to the side throwing rocks at him. Yes. <laughs> the rocks and I kept hilarious. thinking, you're throwing rocks at him. And then when they run up to him, they don't carry rocks with them and just start hitting him with them. They all just run up to him without anything. Well, there was a real delayed <laughs> response to everything, too. Like, it, it felt yes. like they didn't know how to react. And we're going to talk a little bit about Joy, who's played by Denise Nicholas in this film, because mm-hmm. she was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about her at my presentation. Um, because she is, well, we'll talk about it when we get to it. We'll talk about it because I want to know what you thought and I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, it's fine. Um, I, I love animals. So I felt real bad for the dog. Yeah. Yeah. I felt real sad when the dog died. I was like, oh no, you can kill all the people you want, but you have killed a dog. It's unforgivable. Mm -hmm. But you know, didn't Michael Um, Myers do that? Yes. That's why I can't forgive him for it either. But he's sexy. (laughs) I know. <laughs> it's just bad, though. And I'm like you. I actually felt really, really bad for uh, Joan Hackett's character because, yeah. you know, she admits that she's made up this big lie about having, you know, this great family and everything. And she's really just very alone. And it's just really, I mean, it's it's really depressing. And I'm like, it's interesting that she's the one that gets killed because she's, you know, she's like really the saddest character. And then she ends up, you know, dying alone as well. Oh, I know. I mean, it's very sad. I'm like, I, you know. I, I, we'll say that there, there is that, that moment where she shows a picture of her two kids, and I put the kids in quotes. And it's funny because this is 1971. I don't know when color photography began, but there are two pictures oh, of yeah. like, these, like, it's a picture of these <laughs> twins, and it's in black and white. And I thought, when did you have the baby? In 1934? Wasn't the, it, you know, <laughs> it was a daguerreotype, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was what they used the magic lantern and yes. they showed it on the wall. <laughs> I also really love Stephanie Powers in this movie. I like Stephanie Powers anyway. I loved her in Die, Die, My Darling yes. with Tallulah Bankhead. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really liked her character here because it's like you were saying, we were saying about um, Anjanette Comer is her character here is totally different from the one from, you know, Die, Die, My Darling. And that's the main movie I remember Stephanie Powers from for some reason. So um, I, it was fun to see her play a character that's, you know, a bit different from that. And, of course, she does have the – she is kind of mean to the dog, which I wasn't a fan of. I realized she was allergic, but she was just a little overly mean about it. That was, an, inst- that was an instant allergy. I don't know where that – I've never yeah, seen that. Yeah, I mean, the that. dog had been there for forever, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I can't be in the same house with him. And I'm like, he, he'll be in a bedroom. Yeah. I thought she overreacted a little bit. I don't have allergies to dogs, so I don't. I guess I don't realize how bad it is. I'm a little ignorant about that. Well, so. according <laughs> according to the other women there, she's sort of a frigid bitch, and yeah. I think that that's part of the character. I think that she kind of like wants things a certain way, and it's interesting because of all the women that are there on the island, I think the one we get to know the least is Stephanie Powers' character, Gloria. Yes, I, I'm, I'm looking at the – I have it playing on TV right here, and I'm looking at her. I'm thinking, I know actually very little about her, but the other four I know quite a bit about. Yeah, she was very removed from everything, mm-hmm. and I, I, maybe that was the point. But mm-hmm. I'm, I want to ask you both, did either one of you get a Mother's Day vibe off of this? 
the cough, the trauma film. Uh huh. And I I say that because <sighs> because Julie Summers' character reminds me very much of the girl in Mother's Day that has the horrible mother she's trying to get away from. Oh, oh yeah. you're yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And then she yeah. kind of builds I some strength. You know, mm-hmm. she builds some strength at the end when she yells at the guy through the window, and it takes everything in her to do it. And yes. I have a feeling that if she had an inflatable breast in her hand, that guy, would, <laughs> that guy would have been Can over. Yeah, yeah. Oh yes. Whatever she did in that, there's like an inflatable breast in that film, isn't there? There yeah. could be. Yeah, there yeah. Could, yeah, yeah, in the TV. Yeah. But in, and they're also kind of in the same location, and and one person, the saddest character, dies. So you know, in um, a Mother's Day, the saddest character is the one that dies. You know, yes, like, it's just it's so horrifying, I like what happens that, to her. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. And Mother's Day is a real hard movie to watch. And I think the older I get, the less I want to watch it because that rape scene is absolutely abhorrent. But um, I had a friend that walked out of it in the theater when it originally opened and he's never going back. And it's not even like you see anything, but they make her do things, you know, in the film. And when she dies, you feel like she really needed to survive this and like get back at what they did to her. And she doesn't get that. And Joan Hackett also doesn't, she's a confessed. So her characters we've talked about says, um, you know, I have these two kids and I'm married and my husband loves it when I take care of him and blah, blah, blah. And then she kind of adopts this dog that's been left on the Island and it goes to sleep outside because Gloria wants, doesn't want it in the house and it gets killed and they think it got caught in the surf and it was an accident. But then Joan Hackett comes down on the beach and sees him there and everything comes out like just in tears. Mascot. You did it. I did what? If it wasn't for you, he would have been inside with me last night. Or look, 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 look. Door's awful, but it wasn't even your dog. He would have been. He was a nice dog, you know? He was a really nice dog. He was a good little doggy. And he liked me. And I could have took care of him. I told him I took him back with me. I, I would have been able to... I'd, I'd like to be able to take care of something like that. But you have your husband and your children. I don't have any children. I don't have any damn husband. So I don't think the music does that scene much service. It's super melodramatic. But No, yeah. What is he up to there? What's his name? Paul Glass. Yeah. Oh, my God. Is that the name of uh, what's-her-name's fake boyfriend? George Glass. George George Glass. Glass. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Jan Brady is what I meant. Um, So... uh, There's that scene right after she says he was a good little doggy and he liked me. She says... I thought I could have took care of him. Like, she says it, like, with this sort of lisp or something. And because yeah. she, she's so upset. And and I still remember watching this movie when I was a kid. I don't remember necessarily that scene, but I remember the impact of how I felt about her and to watch her die like that. Because it's a pretty brutal death. And it's so effective. And it, like, 
it like really, it really got to me. Like this is just a weird little TV movie that somebody made and came out in 1971, but it's got resonance because it has character moments that are really fascinating to me. That one being probably my favorite. Um, I can't remember where this conversation started. We were talking just, oh, about Mother's Day and how yes. I see similarities between this character and the woman in Mother's Day as well as Julie Summers' character and the woman in Mother's Day with the horrible mother. I... Kind of, I see totally what you're talking about. I mean, I, I love Mother's Day, but it's one of those movies where, like, the, the, the rape scene and everything leading up to it, like you were talking about, like, to me, like, the rape scene is really awful. But to me, the scenes leading up to it where they're basically humiliating her yes. are just it, – it's terrible. Like, the, you know, yeah. emotional like, – again, like, the emotional torture – you know, uh, that they're putting her through. Like, it's very hard to watch. I love the revenge scenes. Yes. I mean, I could rewatch those. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really hard to watch, you know, uh, that part. So, you know, uh, I totally see what you're talking about with uh, Five Desperate Women. I have to say that I am a huge, you know, animal lover. So while I think that, you know, a good portion of, um, you know, uh, Joan Hackett's character, I can never remember her name. Um, Dorian, isn't it? Dor- Dorian. Dorian. Um, the way she feels about uh, the dog, um, yeah, I know mostly it's, it's you know, like her sadness at her own life. You know, that's a big portion of it. But see, even like, I mean, I'm, I'm very content with my life, but if I was on this island and this dog that I bonded with the night before died, I would be a mess. I don't know for how yeah. long. Even if somebody said it wasn't even your dog, I'm like, I don't care. Like, I can bond with an animal, like, yeah. very, yes. very immediately. So I'd be very upset about this dog dying. And I would, probably would be upset at my friend who was kind of uh, rude about it the night before. <laughs> she was. And I think Stephanie Powers' character, Gloria, <laughs> felt that to an extent. But there's something about that character that only feels things to a certain extent. I think, I think the yes. hair kind of the hair yeah. kind of drapes over the it, mind. It it's does. like this, this it blocks science fiction it bl- thing that yeah. It blocks, blocks the guilt. Empathy. It blocks yeah. all the guilt that's coming at her. Yeah, it the, does. The the thing that breaks my heart about Dorian's death is just that the dog dies, and then while well, all the other ones are like throwing a beach ball on the beach, I don't know. You came here to throw a beach ball seriously, but I guess they're they're having fun with that. But but she's like she took a sleeping pill and she's sleeping on the bed, and then you just get like a point of view. A guy comes yes. in and she's like, "Oh, it's you," and then he begins to sort of pat her arm, and she waves him away, and then she pat he pats her arm some more, and then he strangles her. And it's like, oh, come on, really? This one? Are we? Maybe, maybe that's as sort of misanthropic as people might call slasher films because they're mainly about killing people. At least in a lot of slasher films, most of the time, the people who get killed are people where you're like, all right, kill, kill that one, and right. then kill that. One. But this is like, it's always like, uh, uh, um, like uh, some of my favorite slashers, you know, are. are just killing jerks or killing sort of ciphers or, or things like that but but to actually kill someone who like uh, a film i love and i don't i know you don't amanda is final exam i like most of the characters this is in that the last movie. podcast you can bring up that movie I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, kidding. I'm, I'm teasing you. But he brings it up every episode, and I think I said in some you, one of the what about you said something about final exam? Yeah, hmm, one what? of the interviews what? I did recently. I think I said I think he brings it up, thinking one day I'm going to like it because he's said it so many times, but it's not going to happen. I no, I have I the final I exam. Think... I have the final exam soundtrack, and I love it. 
Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I, well, Do you I, like any of the characters, Amanda? Yeah, I like Radish or Radish. Turnip or whatever his name oh, is. But <laughs> Turnip. <laughs> and I don't mind, uh, what's her name, Cecile Bag- Bagdali or whatever. I don't necessarily mind the actors in it. Well, except that fucking, who's that stinky football player guy that's in it? Wild Man. Wild Man. He's so gross. Um, Amanda, this I, looks like a job for Wild Man. Come on. No, no, no. It's just not good. <laughs> it's not good. It's and but that's it's got fine. The gal from Killer Party in it. But but the, yeah, and I like her in it too. But I don't like the movie, and that's my cross to bear. But like, I think in the last, I think if we go and backtrack, you mentioned Final Exam in these podcasts. You mentioned it in the last few podcasts, which is fine. I'm teasing you when I say you can't bring it up again. But you always bring that up. Valentine's Day and one, last last slumber party is the other one. And I think oh, you think yes. if you oh, say it enough. Yes. That something's gonna like go off in my head and make me go, no. "Oh, it is good. You're right, Dan. No. I was so wrong. Please forgive me. Can I shine your shoes? It's not gonna happen. I think it'll happen by episode thirty four <laughs> okay <laughs> but no, you're more than I, I welcome just, to bring just, a final exam. Up, you're more than welcome to. I bring up final exam rather than last slumber party because the joy of last slumber party is that no 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 no, no, as no. Much, stick with final exam, as, stick with final exam one one at a time. Oh. Oh, final exam I bring up because I like almost all of the characters because the the movie spends the time setting up the first hour with the characters and then it kills them off like one after another after another after another and last slumber party I don't I don't know that any of the characters are likable they're extremely lovable but not likable. And and this is sort of like with Dorian's character. It's like, she's a character I've been watching for 40 minutes and I really like her. I don't care that she wore too much makeup to go out on the beach. I, I think she's, I think she's, <laughs> well, she's a Joan Hackett was looking good in this movie. Her little shorts. There's something about her. Yeah. Yeah. She's beautiful, her, but her little shorts and that little beautiful, like tank top she had on that black sweater tank top. I don't argue. She don't was argue. looking incredible. And um, if I could be Joan Hackett for like five minutes, I would be very happy because she was an amazing (laughs) woman. Wasn't she married to Richard Mulligan from Soap? She was. She was. And, you know, she was one of Carrie Fisher's best friends. And when Carrie Fisher married Paul Simon, she was Uh dying at the time, I think. And because, you know, Joan Hackett died very young. And she threw a party. And I think I think the story goes and I'm not positive of this, but I think the story goes that she checked herself out of the hospital to throw a party for Carrie Fisher and Paul Simon. And then checked herself back in. And I believe her headstone says something like, don't bother me, I'm sleeping. (laughs) Yeah, she was an incredible woman. She's got a great, because the other four women are all, um, to me, they're all all gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Uh, But there's something about Joan Hackett that's a little bit like, like a little little different she's just she's she's uh, 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 she's beautiful but there's something about it that's a little like from angles it's like you're a little weird looking and i like that yeah she's different she's quirky like okay so stephanie powers mm-hmm. is my queen but like sure but like she's perfect and that's fine i'm glad she's perfect she could use know? a haircut yeah, well, there, but in general, she's a perfect person. But, like, I also, like, I agree with you to an extent that I don't think Joan Hack is necessarily weird-looking. I guess offbeat, maybe, compared to other actresses. Mm-hmm. But she's um, she's so unique in her beauty. And, um, and I like that. It's more relatable to me, you know, to see women who are sort of have a little variety to them. Not that Stephanie Powers isn't, I don't want to demean her incredible beauty either. But she's just not cookie-cutter. So... Um, she's very pleasant and not only that, but she's, her performances are always really interesting. And so 
um, whenever she's in anything, I don't care what it is, I might not like the film. She could have been in Final Exam. I wouldn't have liked the film, but I would have liked her in it. You know, um, I'm going to go off on a, a little bit of a tangent just because I think it's a little funny. But since you're talking about Stephanie Powers, uh -huh. I don't know if either of you were a fan of Mama's Family from the 80s. Sure. I, I'm a did watch, I did watch Mama's Family. I haven't watched it since the 80s, but I did watch it <laughs> almost religiously. There's like an episode where she's talking about a TV movie she can't wait to watch. And it's called My Sister, Myself. And she says something <laughs> in it like Stephanie Powers plays two um you know people like a nun who is accused of murder that her evil twin sister committed she's like the nun is on trial while the sister's just raising hell with barry bostwick <laughs> oh that must be a that. real movie when, when i wish did, it was wait didn't one of us come up with that, that idea nate when we were when we did our um uh, title uh game show things <laughs> that sounds like an idea that one of us came up with or i don't know I, I, I want to say there was a nun-related one. I don't know. I don't remember that one. But the, and And, folks, I believe Mama's Family is out on a complete series uh, DVD set, so you can pick that up. Wow. I if think. that's not a trademark, so, not trademark, a sales pitch. She was, uh, <laughs> Thelma Harper was as big of a fan of Stephanie Powers as you were. See, and I'm that's why I love Mama. <laughs> <laughs> not just because she lived with Bubba, who I thought was so cute. Oh, he was. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> just just to get back. Oh, sure. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, what, uh, I, I'm sorry, Amanda. Yes. I was going to ask Julie Sum Summers. Yes. I know her from this. She is in the first regular episode of Harry O, which won like an oh, Edgar Award. That's right. I just watched that. That was so good. It's so good. It she's really good. in an. She's in the Mad Hatter party episode of Ellery Queen with Larry Hagman, uh, which is really Ooh. good. Um, but my question about her is, um, what, and she's also in the movie with um, uh, uh, something with the, the the baby and her, oh, oh it's uh, Beyond Westworld. She's in a Beyond Westworld, oh. which we can tie into Connie Selica and she's dressed to kill. She's in a Beyond Westworld where her husband, who's play, who is um, Richard Jekyll, Jackal, uh -huh. Jackal, Jackal, whatever. He he has a um the the evil guy from Westworld implants something in his brain and makes him into a human robot. And she plays her husband, and they try to adopt the child, but he keeps yelling. That's Richard Jekyll for you. But uh, what do you think of Julie Summers' voice? I think a lot of it was post dub. So, um, it sounded it, it it didn't sound right to me. Um, but she has just a. But I guess she sounded like Harry O. It just it just it felt like they did a lot of um, in studio recording with her, and maybe that's okay. because I'm thinking of the dialogue where she's on the boat talking to um, Joy about Joy being a prostitute. I don't believe you, Mary Grace. You haven't changed. I promise you, I won't end up in the fires of eternal hell. But you were brilliant, Joy. You got more out of Brindley than any of us. You bet. And off I went to Washington to a job Brindley maneuvered for me. It was just like another charity scholarship. Mary Grace, do you understand? I think I do. So, one day I said, forget it. I packed my things and I went to New York. I figured I could do some modeling until I got settled. Well, there was no charity scholarship waiting there. So I decided to go into business for myself. 
using the one thing Brindley never taught me. Men were kind to me, honest, generous, and not at all unappreciative. Now I'm financially solvent. I'm taking it all on my own terms, smiling at whom I want, when I want. Then you're happy. Happy? I'm making big money. That buys a lot of happiness. I feel like most of the dialogue was post-dubbed because they were on the beach a lot. Probably. And on because the, yeah. On the mm -hmm. boat. Um, but she, her voice is very little girl. But it works for the character, and it may have been played mm -hmm. up a little bit for the character. Because in, in the Ellery Queen she's in, uh, they go to a, uh, Ellery goes to a mansion in the middle of, like, upstate New York, and they're, they're, they're practicing a Mad Hatter party for the owner's, like, son or nephew or something because he loves Alice in Wonderland, and she's dressed up as Alice in Wonderland throughout it. And uh -huh. Larry Hagman, I believe, is the Mad Hatter. I could be wrong there. That makes sense. But, but, um, but and so she's dressed as Alice in Wonderland, and... Um, they're putting on a play that Ellery wrote, and she's going to be the lead actress, so she's constantly going to Ellery asking him things. And she has that sort of little girly kind of voice, which fits there, but sometimes doesn't quite seem to fit. But that's her voice. I don't know. I can't uh, – you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, sorry, Julie, if you're listening, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I think it works well for the character here because when she has that freak out at the end, it's still like, get out of here. And it's like yeah. – it's taking a lot in her to, be, and but they take her seriously. You know what I mean? And maybe yes. that's the point. And that would, I think it was a good casting choice. But since I played that clip, I want to talk a little bit about Denise Nicholas and why she's so important oh, yes. to this film. Mm -hmm. So Denise Nicholas, and I wish I reread this. I wrote an article about her on my blog for Black History Month a couple years ago because I love her. And, uh, you know, she was on In the Heat of the Night for a while. And she was, she's also very politically active. Um, for race, uh, social justice and racial issues and things like that. And she's a really, really layered, fascinating woman and a really amazing actress. And something about Denise Nicholas in this part, um, and it's probably just because the film isn't as widely known as other types of proto-slashers, but, you know, she is a call girl. And she is essentially the final girl. Even though there's four survivors at the end of the film, she is the only girl that manages to keep her shit together and to do something about what's happening. And it's really subversive. It's really subversive. You don't even see that today. You very seldom see women of color making it to the end of the horror film anyway, much less being the uh, girl who's got her stuff together. And, and she kind of pays for that in a way at the end. So she does have that sort of final girl ending where, like, she defeats the killer, but then it sort of destroys her in a way. She has the blood on her hands. Yeah, yeah and, and she's freaking out like you would. It's a very natural response. But I think she's so important just in film, especially horror film, and is never recognized because we still don't see women of color in these kinds of roles in slashers. And then 1971... Ted, honorary old Ted Post, you know, who was going to direct the baby. Like, you know what I mean? He saw that. And I don't know if she was written as a black character if they just hired her because she's an amazing actress. But it has sort of a political undertone to it because of that. It's sort of like Night of the Living Dead, you know? So, like, Dwayne Jones, George Romero says, was just hired because he was the best actor. But because of when it was made and because of the ending of the film, it really feels like it's a statement on the civil rights movement and the 
what was happening to black people in the 60s. And likewise, I think in some ways, I don't know that it's speaking that to that necessarily, but it is subversive in that it's giving the woman of color the power and the brains and making her like the most together character in the film, even though she's a prostitute. Yeah. So she's been marginalized <laughs> twice, right? You know, just by yeah. the very fact that she's a woman of color and then to have the profession that she has. But she is the savior of the film. And so she's, like, super important to me. And I feel like if people watch this film, and I agree that it has campy moments and it goes up and down in terms of is it a proto-slasher? Is it, is, is it really scary? But I think that it's it's got so much substance in the characters that it's so worthwhile visiting or revisiting it. I think um, uh, part of the thing with whether or not it's proto-slasher and is it scary, I don't think proto-slashers per se needed to be scary because if, they, if they're if they um, presenting elements that the slasher, um, the slasher film, when it, when it actually arrives, use, um, not all of those elements are are scary elements. So I, right. I think uh, I think that I think the fact that this I mean I don't I don't I mean there are some moments in the beginning like when the guy bursts out of the window and the infirmary and stuff like that and and when Joan Hackett is killed you know that could be sort of of creepy and and when they discover her body and realize the two jerks are one of them is the killer that 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 has moments of, of scariness in it but I don't know that it needs to be. Um, scary. It's it's funny. It's like I I love watching what I'm putting in quotes proto slashers because they're they're fascinating all the elements of them and stuff. But I will say that when I watched it recently, that joy. I I know I like all the characters, but joy is like I think like the like she she's the she's the character to watch. I think. Yes. Um, and there's some there's something about that. Yeah, the the moment where um. I forget where it is where um when they discover the dead caretaker and they discover right. he's the real Wiley and and instantly um the Southern Belle and, and Stephanie Powers huge hair turn to <laughs> to her and say, What do we do? And she's like, Why do I have to be the one who always <laughs> figures out what to do? You know, yeah, I was like, Oh yeah, I guess yeah, that's right. There's also a really interesting element at the end um, when they finally get Wiley and they kill him. And mm-hmm. uh, we should talk about Bradford Dillman after this, by the way. I don't want to neglect him. but um, Sure, sure, please. They, they kill Wiley and, you know, Joy is obviously upset. She's just murdered someone. And Anjanette Comer, who seemed, as you said, kind of racist, is the one mm-hmm. that comes over to comfort her. Yes, yes. And, there's and this, she it's really... A really it's it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic between the two women because, you know, at the beginning when they're like, well, Joy's coming and they're like, well, Joy was always a part of our club. And then Anjanette Comer was like, not really. And um, and so you get this idea that they just would rather not have anything to do with each other. But then they in the end, they they are there for each other. And I think that's like a yes. really important message, you know, and I really like that, too. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah the look on uh, the look on Anjanette Co- her uh, Lucy's face when she sees um, uh, Joy with the blood on her hands, sort of shaking, is like really like a powerful like moment yeah. there where she's like she she forgets that she's uh, <laughs> like a rich Southern semi racist belle alcoholic. and just yeah. <laughs> gets alcoholic and just kind of dives in there and just 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 is 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 sweet and then it. it um, and then the way it ends with the four of them walking out into the beach. And unfortunately, they're playing that dumb song 
Oh, I love that song. Oh, do you like that? That song reminds me of, I think, of Girls' Night Out. You remember Girls' Night Out? Yeah, of what, what, of course, we both do. Um, the uh, the when they have that big party right before the scavenger uh-huh. hunt starts, and all like the gals get together and they start to sing. I forget what the song is, but it was just I, I love Girls' Night Out. But that song always drives me up the wall. And when they they sing a song in the beginning of the movie, the five gals, that's about how marrying a rich man is better than marrying yeah. a poor one. And I guess you know what? <clears throat> Who can argue? I mean, <laughs> I mean, as I think that's probably correct, but but it's sort of like it kind of plays underneath at the end, and it's it's semi poignant and semi. I wish they'd played something else. Well, I actually think that that's those women singing, and it's, so it's got that oh, killer party sure. tinge to it, where you think okay. it's three oh. girls. Because if you listen to it, it actually sounds. I can. I think I feel like I can pick out certain voices, okay. but like there's something really haunting about that, and you know, I made it copy of it to put on the show i'm going to play it at the end and i listened to it like five times and it just really upset me there's something about it that like haunts me and i'm not really sure what it is and i'm not really sure why if something haunts me i need to listen to it five times in a row but (laughs) but i went ahead and did it yeah i actually really like the end theme song okay all right well maybe i'll listen to it again it's funny oh yeah i i um I, I think I think I didn't like it when they sang it the first time, and then hearing it again, I was like, I'd prefer to hear something different. But I understand what you're saying. It's also really weird. It's discordant. Like their voices don't necessarily yeah. work together, and it yeah. almost sounds like it's tinny. Like it's like they recorded it like yes. with a tin can, you know. And and yeah. they're, it's really effective. I don't know. I mean, everybody can listen at the end. If anybody wants to talk about it on, when we get to our next show, then um, by all means, let us know how you feel about it. I'll have it at the end here. And if I'm wrong, tell me. You're I'm... probably not wrong. I'm pretty sure I'm I'm overemphasizing. So you have to know when I watched this movie uh, over the weekend, I was on the elliptical and I was doing the elliptical for 70 minutes. By the time I oh got my to god! The, by the time I got to the end of the Sorry. film, so I was having all kinds of emotions. <laughs> mostly you know? sweat, sweaty ones. Yeah, mostly like I want to die. I want to die. <laughs> but I can get up to 90 on the elliptical. But so I only did 70. So I'm, I'm in really good shape, guys. So, oh, um, yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> we know, we know. You're yes. you're in the best shape of the, I think, of the, the podcast. I'm working on it, but I'm never gonna hit the elliptical for seventy. I, I can't, um, I can't justify my life doing that. Well, if you but, can find um, a good movie to watch while you're doing it, it's really easy. Probably, yeah. Can I just say I like what Julie Summers wears during the final scene when they kill Robert Conrad? I like her outfit. I like all the... Okay, that, that was another thing. I really like the costumes in this film. So we're going to definitely talk about the fashion in She's Dressed to Kill. But yes. this movie was almost just as fashionable in its own way because it was 1971, so it was still in that really like sort of poppy, bright, weird, bell-bottomy, sheer satiny whatever whatever and you know when they're leaving the house so there's a scene they realize who the killer is or it's one of the two guys and so they decide in the middle of the night they're going to take off for the boat and so they put on their i'm going to take off for the boat clothes and anjanette (laughs) comer is wearing like they look like pajamas they're like pink satin do you remember what i'm talking about it's like a top and a bottom that are pink satin and i can't tell she's just wearing her pjs or if it's actually meant to be like an outfit but it doesn't look like it would do well in the water. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, and she had a shawl. And it was like, it was so Oh, fan- I remember the shawl. It was yeah. fantastic. As a matter of fact, another thing I liked about the costumes was that it was very specific to the characters. 
Mm-hmm. So with especially Anjanette Comer's outfit, very uh, felt very Southern belly. Mm-hmm. And and it really worked. And and I think that Julie Summers had a more sort of uh, demure wardrobe. Yes. Well, when you see that, there's uh, when you see the opening scene with her in the limo. With oh, I'm looking at it now. Oh my gosh, yeah, she got the shawl and the thing and the stuff. Wow. Okay. Um, but it uh, the the movie starts off uh, with this this scene of this guy escaping from this place and then killing someone on a beach. But then it immediately cuts to Julie Summers' uh, character. Um, oh, Mary Grace. Mary Grace. In, yeah. a, in a limo, in a scene that's, it's like, it's almost like out of like Twin Peaks or something. It's like she, there are two old women on the back seat of the limo. And Julie Summers is sitting there. And one of the old women leans over to the other woman. And the other woman leans into her ear. And it's like, your mother's wondering if you're going to wear your sunglasses. Yeah, I've got them right here. You tell her. She's she just worried about you. And it's this weird scene where, like, the mother has this. The mother can't speak above a whisper. Well, and she, she actually only... can't speak at all. So, like, they they uh-huh. sort of clarify towards the end of the film that the, that woman is her sister, the mother's sister, I think. Okay. And they've been playing this quote unquote game for twelve years. And twelve mother, years. And the mother's not actually saying anything. She's just leaning into the ear, and then she's saying things that are like really aggressive and negative towards Julie Summers to sort yes. of break down her care, her personality. And her personhood. And so, and she knows it's fake. It's, yeah, it's so weird. It's so weird. It's like almost out of a different movie. It's, and, it's so yeah, and weird. she has all these anger issues, which again makes me think of Mother's Day because that woman really hated her mom. You know what I mean? Deep down. Yes. She yeah. loved her mom and she hated her. And Julie Summers is much in the same. And whenever she tries to like be confrontational, it's really mm-hmm. difficult for her. So when she, at the end, when, what's so funny? Okay, so after the boat explodes, they're all like, oh no, the boat exploded, everybody. And then there's a knock at the door and they're like, let's not answer it. So they go in the kitchen and there's two windows, right? There's one behind them and there's one to the side. And one of them, or both of them, come to the window and they're like, hey, the boat blew up, guys. Are you okay? And they're like, we're not talking to you. When have you <laughs> killed somebody? And they close the, the window drapes. And then they're like, okay. And then they come up to the next window. They left one window with the drapes open. And then they're in the, two seconds later, they're both standing at the other window. And it's like, my, it makes me laugh so hard. because That's great. <laughs> There's like all these windows they haven't like bothered to secure, you know, in any yes. way, shape, or form. Yeah. So they're just showing up at different windows, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now." They're standing at the first window. It's like last slumber party, but they're not. They're not letting them in. It's funny, yeah. Oh my god! And there's there's Lucy with her babushka on. Oh, Lucy, we love you. I like the butterflies in the hair. Oh, that's right. That's right. I love that fashion choice. <laughs> I love all of it. I mean, they just very, look... It's very 70s. Yes, they yes. look so of their time. It was like... And... I, I really love the fashion of that era anyway, but like, if I wore any of that today walking down the street, even in Austin, where they try to keep it weird, I would stand out like a sore thumb. It was so... <laughs> it, and this was just a regular day-to-day wear, but it was so like... Fabulous is not the word I'm looking for. It was fabulous, but it was like um, oh, ornate and over the top. Broke. Baroque? Yeah, Baroque. I don't know. I can't think of the word I want to use. I feel like it starts with an F. Flamboyant. Yes. Perfect. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, because it 
comes off of the, sort of the psychedelic at the end of the 60s into the start of the 70s. Yeah, yeah, it was a really weird era. But it was like, I love that, like, Anjanette Comer's pink satin thing was, like, running away wear. And then she can nap yes, in it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Although babushkas, I think, are sort of standard old Polish woman wear. Because well, yeah. my, um, my, my grandmother and my mother own a lot of them. <laughs> so let's talk real quickly about Bradford Dillman. Um, I don't have yes. too much to say, but I feel like we should mention him because he's an intricate part of this film and he's great in it. Um, I really like the scene where he's driving them up to the island and he's talking about their diet. Do you remember this? Yeah. He's telling them, oh, you mm -hmm. do this and that, but yeah. you, you eat so poorly. And I bet you're going to... But I, what I thought in my memory was that he was telling them that they were too skinny, but I think he was concerned about them eating like oh. hamburgers. I thought it was a hamburger related too. Yeah, 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 but. yeah, it is. But he's so like quirky and like and like when I so I hadn't seen Five Dress for Women in like probably five years and I kind of forgot who the killer was. And so when I was watching it, I kept thinking maybe it is Bradford Dillman. I can't remember, <laughs> but he's so fucking creepy in this. Yeah, yeah, he's he's and he's got all those things where it's like uh, when they're. Um, they're getting ready to leave the dock. He yells to a guy who doesn't speak English. How do we get to Sunshine That's Island right. or whatever it's called? They're like, you don't know how to get there. I've only been on the job a week. And it's like, whoa, hey, I love red herrings. Mm, <laughs> <delish>. <laughs> but I, I will tell you one of the main giveaways was when I think Robert Conrad goes into Joan Hackett's bedroom and he whispers something and you could tell it was Robert Conrad's voice. And that was does it, the giveaway. Does it does it look like Robert when the person leaps out of the window in the beginning? Does it look like Robert Conrad? I can't. It looks remember. like Robert Conrad more than it does Bradford Dillman. I think. Yeah, I just remember. I think it's the dog scene where it looks like it's Bradford Dillman because Bradford Dillman's thinner, and the okay, pants yeah, were hanging yeah. on on the person as though it was a um, thinner person. And yeah, so, so around the tush. They yeah, it wasn't hugging. Thing. It wasn't hugging the butt cheeks, uh, the buttocks, mm -hmm. as much as uh, one hopes. <laughs> but we do what we can yeah. with our cheeks. Oh God, Robert Conrad, we love you so much. Um, I, I'm, I just recently started watching Hawaiian Eye, which was his first TV oh, show from the late fifties. It's a lot of fun with uh, Anthony Isley from Dracula versus Frankenstein. Tourist Tana was on that. Oh wow! Yeah, I don't oh, know. Wow. I don't know how big her part was or anything, but I, I, she was in at least one or two episodes that I know of. Mm. So keep keep watching. So should yes. I do background, or is there anything else we want to talk about? I just wish that uh, Julie Summers had gotten her revenge on you know her mother and her uh, mother yes. sister. Uh, I mean, I, actually, it's interesting because you talk about Mother's Day, and I'm like, she didn't necessarily get revenge on her mom. No, she took but it she out. She kind of took it. out all her anger. You know, because you're a sick woman. That's right. That's, That's a really good impression. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. You're welcome. Um, but I, she's so good in that scene. And then I think yeah. about, like, what would it have been like if, say, there was, like, a moment like that? Because, like you said, Julie Summers kind of has that moment when she yells at him at the window. But I wonder if they'd give her, like, a more dramatic moment. Like, right. I wonder, like, how that would have gone. I, I always wonder to, that now. I have to tell yeah. you that that scene where Julie Summers has the freak out and then starts kind of palpitating, that's me. I'm, I'm really... All, right now? No, but when I told you you can't talk about Final Exam anymore afterwards, I had to take a Xanax. <laughs> 
It was funny. I thought I heard someone go on mute. I thought it was Nate. Maybe I thought the dogs. Were oh, I actually do that. Yeah, I, I usually hit mute when I'm not talking or planning on saying anything because I've got all these animals here. Oh right. Oh yeah. I've got well. I've got two dogs right underneath my chairs here, but um, they're pretty still right now. So. So okay. So do you have anything else you want to add? I feel like did we talk about it? There's so much to talk about with this film. I'm not sure sure. we. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like we could we could do like maybe maybe in a year or two from now we can do we can reconvene with more stuff on it. But there's there is a lot to talk about. Yeah. And, um, Just and I'm um, like like why does Joan Hackett wear so much makeup to go down to the beach? And I think she's wearing a wig. To be honest with you, I think that's not her hair. Oh, wow. Okay. It looks good, but I feel like you you can look at a lot of like in the seventies before they kind of perfected wigs. Um, mm -hmm. they don't really have parts in their hair. Like you can see there's oh, a yeah, part, sure. but you can't see the skin underneath. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in the part. And so a lot of times when you see hair like that, that's a good sign that it's a wig. Okay. Yeah. I know. I know most of my wigs uh, for the past few years from watching RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> yeah. They look uh, better now. They look better their, now. Yeah. They're, they, you know, you can spot every once in a while, you can spot a bad wig line on yeah. there. It's like, no girl. Yeah. This no wasn't girl. like a bad wig line, but it was definitely like. It had a look to it that made me feel like it was artificial. Whereas Stephanie Powers, who has extremely curly hair, um, <laughs> just made it bigger. Like when you watch her on Heart to Heart, her hair is big. But those are like really natural curls. And so I think in yeah. the 70s, she just picked it instead of like curling it. Kind of yeah. let it do what it was going to do. Um, but otherwise, she's absolute perfection. And, sure. You sure. Know, I love her. And I love Anjanette Comer. I think she's a really a fascinating actress. Um, Can I... Can I bring up one more point before we go to background? Sure. I had a second point, but I forget, just forgot what it was. May May I bring up yeah. a movie that this, this reminded me it of? It reminds me of Final Exam. It reminds me of a film <laughs> called The Last Slumber Party. No, it doesn't. Uh, yes. Yes, it does. It's so it's, similar. Oh, my gosh. No, um, no it's um, uh, Have a Nice Weekend. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, I love Have a Nice Weekend. Have a Nice Weekend is fantastic. It's from the mid I think it's from 76, I want to say. And it's basically the, the premise is, it, maybe it's earlier, son comes home from Vietnam and he's a little crazy and they show him being a little crazy and he and his family get on a boat and they go to an island where they have like a private family home. But it's an island that has like three houses on it or something. And it's about to be closed down for the winter, but they go there for the weekend just to hang out and someone starts killing the family members. And it's 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 really if you can find a copy, man, it's really interesting. I mean, it's not it's it it's proto slasher. It has moments that aren't slashery at all. It has a psycho style ending where a psychiatrist spends five minutes explaining why the killer did what they did. But it's really it's it's I actually watched Nate. You'll like you'll like this. Joe from Bleeding Skull a few years ago at Christmas um, before. The DVD that got pulled came out. He gave me DVDRs of Have a Nice Weekend and Savage Water. Oh, God, I love both those movies. I love both those movies. Yeah, and I, 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 it was Christmas Day, and I sat down in the evening, and I watched them both and loved them both. But Have a Nice Weekend has this sort of same take these people out to this island in the middle of nowhere where they have no access to getting out of there, and someone starts to kill them. 
and yeah, it's it's really good. It's not you know it's it's a family. It's not it's not a a group of of women celebrating their their time in college. But for some reason, about halfway through this, I thought, "Have a nice weekend." I haven't watched that in a while. Where's my Blu-ray? Vinegar Syndrome, eighty-eight films. What are you doing? Give me my Blu-ray. Have- and Amanda, watch it. Okay. Oh, it's it's such a good movie, and uh, unfortunately, you guys, it's it's almost oh. ten. Thank you, Dave. All right. All right well, Dave. y'all have a good evening. I can't wait to discuss, um, you know, my five minutes, which I, can't I will definitely be ready for. Yay! All right, we'll see Give you then. Six, if you want. Yes. Oh, we'll do six. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Right. Bye. Bye. All right. So let's just do some background. Then, are you ready? I am. Okay. So this movie aired on ABC on September 28, 1971. It ran against Hawaii 5.0, an episode with Monty Markham, by the way, um, and an episode of Canon. Those aired on CBS. On NBC was something called Sarge, which was a short-lived series with Martin Sheen, and another series called Funny Side, where Gene Kelly serves as the principal host of a satirical series dealing with contemporary subjects. This particular episode was about the funny side of money. Um... The Washington Post gave Five Deaths for Women three stars. I believe that's out of four. It was ranked at number 19 for the 1971-72 season for primetime features that aired during that wow. year. It had a rating of 25.5 slash 40, which meant that 25.5 million homes had it turned on. And that represents 40% of the households that had televisions. This was actually a good year for ABC because of the top 30 um, from that season, 24 of those were actually ABC movies. In February of 1973, ABC decided to re-air Five Desperate Women with uh, The Night Stalker, The Haunts of the Very Rich, and Playmates. This was part of a uh, monthly, or what do they call that, network sweeps marketing plan for that year. Um, they says this, this was filmed at Paramount Studios, but obviously there are other locations. I just don't know what they are, like the island. I don't know where that is. Um... The film was directed by Ted Post, as we mentioned earlier, who directed The Baby. Uh, Ted Post is probably most famous for directing The Baby, but also for working with Clint Eastwood, uh, beginning with Rawhide. The two collaborated later on Hang'em High and Magnum Force, but they had a falling out on Magnum Force. Um, Oh. Yeah. I don't know why. Uh, Ted Post was uh, actually married to the same woman for 72 years. And my the screenwriter, interestingly enough, his name is Mark Norman, went on to write Shakespeare in Love. And has been nominated Whoa. and won Oscars and Golden Globes, among other awards. And wow, that- I I I worked. I'm sorry, I worked at New Line when the Shakespeare in Love screenplay showed up. I I like I read it when it first showed wow, up, and so, I thought so close to good, so close to awesome, right there. Yeah, I was like, whoa, this is a charmer. Have you heard? But I also go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that was also the summer where the Wes Craven's New Nightmare script showed up at the same time, too. Even, and I was like, whoa, this is fantastic. Um, do, you, do you remember the Shakespeare in Love scandal? Which I don't think is true, but I love this story. No. Okay, so know. supposedly, Winona Ryder and Gwyneth Paltrow were really good friends. Mm-hmm. And Gwyneth Paltrow was at Winona Ryder's house, and there was a knock at the door. And Winona Ryder, I think Winona Ryder probably lives in a mansion, right? And so she was at the, in the East sure. Wing or something. And mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow answered the door because obviously Winona Ryder had no servants. And either that or it was a phone call. I can't remember. And they said, hey, here's the script for a movie called Shakespeare in Love we want you to look at. And Gwyneth Paltrow stole the script. 
What? And took it home and then auditioned for the part and got it. Now, that's bullshit because you can't submit something without an agent. And there's no sure. way her agent wouldn't have contacted Winona and said, hey, did you get the script? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But in the 90s oh, when yeah. I first heard that story and I didn't know enough about film to know that that was complete bullshit, it was like the best. Because I don't like Gwyneth Paltrow at all. So sure. that just fed into like more reasons to dislike her. Do you know what I mean? Wow, yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, she's so horrible. What a bitch. And then like two years later when I realized you don't submit scripts that way, I was like, wow. I really fell yeah. for that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. I never heard that. Wow. Well, that's a... tell you. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in for any legend or. Okay. Or yeah, story. I've heard. I heard so heard many stories, I'm and in. I'm in. You must hear them because you live in LA. All these stories where people say that they know somebody who knows somebody, and they mm-hmm. sound true at the time. But then before the internet, you know, you couldn't just like Google it and be like, "There's no record of that." But like. <laughs> You just believed him because people told you yes. something, and why would you not believe it? And I would hear the I heard stories about Tom Cruise and like his gay love affairs, and or, yeah. but they were like not just gay love affairs; they were like underage and like dozens of young boys being sent to his house type stories. And of course, I was like, oh, "That's horrible!" <laughs> but then I was like, "How does this person that works at Borders know this?" <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I wanted to believe it because it was so scandalous. But then, like, uh-huh. as I got older, I was like, that was stupid. Why did I not question this mm-hmm. rumor? You know what I mean? Like, do you think if he was really having gay love affairs, he was do- that not indiscreet about it? No. 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 Wow. Because it was like a caravan of, like, underage boys coming to his house. Like, They're in the gravy. story I heard. Like, a caravan. Like, dozens like of Kansas, them. Like, Kansas kids, or something? Well, they were Filipino. And so it was very specific. <laughs> and they were and they were taken on, like, little caravans or something. And, like, piles of them. Uh-huh. And I'm like... And at the time, I was like, oh, my God. That's horrible. And why... Well, and I don't know why I'm admitting to even believing that story. But, like, yeah, then some time passed. And I thought about it. And I was like, oh, yeah. That no way did that happen, and no way did my friend yeah. at Borders know the secret, the supposed secret, but the, <laughs> the police the didn't, group. right? <laughs> I uh, I think this is our best tangent ever. Yeah. To be honest. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I love the Shakespeare and love story. It cracks me up every time I think yes, about it because it's ludicrous. Yeah. But I want to believe it for some reason. played by Eleanor Parker, lives on on top of a mountain. (laughs) And she is a fashion... Well, she was a big fashion designer, but now she's sort of a little passe. 
However, she has been working with, I forget the character's name, but I'm looking real quick, um, a gentleman named Tony Smith. And he has been sort of designing a new uh, batch of fashion that she wants to exhibit as her own. And she calls up Jessica Walter, who plays Irene Barton, who, who runs the Barton Agency of Models. And she says, Irene, I'm going to, I want to do the show. I want to do the show on the mountain. I want you to bring all the models I've worked with over the years because I, I, I don't know if she was exclusively with Barton Models, but she had worked with them quite a bit. Bring up all the models that I love. I want to do this big show. And she's going to bring up, um, along with the models, we're also going to get – uh, a lot of buyers. There's um, some goofy, like ready to wear guys. There's a really rich Texas woman who brings her daughter, who's very plain, played by Gretchen Corbett. Yeah, so she's I'm not putting, really plain. I'm, yeah. So I, I just, I just put plain in quotes. You can't see it, but I just put it in quotes. And she's also bringing up a really bitchy, wonderful art critic or fashion critic. I'm sorry. And and so. Um, uh, Jessica Walter, Irene Barton. So I, I always call her Jessica Walter, no matter what, no matter what she does. I, I never refer to her character names. Um, she, she sort of assembles all the models she can that she knows that Regine wants to see, uh, and says, come on, we're going to go up the mountain, this huge cable car. We could talk about the cable car thing later. And we're going to go up the mountain. We're going to do this fashion show for Regine. One of the models I believe her name is Marissa, and I believe her last name is Newport. But Marissa is killed. She's murdered using lip cyanide lipstick. <laughs> if not, you, if you can believe, not their bestseller that year. Yes, exactly. She she she's killed using cyanide lipstick. So a brand new model. Alex Goldman, played by Connie Selica, a month or two, I think, before she started doing Beyond Westworld, uh, she she who she literally started that day. I think she started that day, and she was uh, she's not very good, but she's got some raw talent, and she she's one of those characters who, um, if you've ever seen a slasher, and you get one of those characters who's like. Um, I really wanted to do this all my life. Okay, come with us. We'll have you come with us on this trip. She's sort of like that. And uh, Irene Barton brings up Alex Conicelica. She brings up all her models. And, and sort of like in the cable car all at once, they're the art critic and the buyers and the models. And they're all up there, including um, uh, a gentleman named Alan, played by John Rubenstein, who I know from Family Feud. When fam family was on Family Feud. Oh, I know him from Crazy Like a Fox. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. I I I, I tried to watch some Family Feud, uh, uh, some Family Feud, some Family, um, maybe uh, three or four months ago. I prefer Eight Is Enough, but he was on he was on Family Feud. I think his character is married to uh, Meredith Baxter. Oh, maybe. Are you? No, that's a different I, actor. Oh crap! I'm almost no, but positive. John John Rubenstein is on Family. Okay, I, right. I believe you. Thinks. I haven't seen Family enough to know, but I know that there's a guy who looks like John Rubenstein who's on there. Because I I know he's on there because it, we have like three or four uh, Family Feud episodes that he's on. 
So I was like, oh, it's the guy from it's the guy from Family, but I I didn't really watch much of it. But they all go up to the um, uh, the mountaintop place and they do a fashion show and it doesn't really go well. And some people head home and some people are going to stay overnight. But the generator breaks down and they're all kind of stuck there. And then someone begins killing the models in rather entertaining ways. But they can't get out of there. The, they, they can't get out of there because everything's broken down. One of the models is a big game hunter slash professional climber. And she goes down the mountain and sends a sheriff with a wry mustache back up. And he begins to investigate. And the problem is that he has only like three or four models left. And they're being bumped off one by one. And everyone else is a suspect. Who did it? Who killed them? Was it? I'm not going to go through all the suspects now. We can talk about them in a minute. But who did it? Who kill? Who is killing these models? We're going to find out in a moment because one of us will spoil it accidentally. We don't mean to, folks. But but keep stand well, by. You have to spoil this one because it's so ridiculous. Yes, yes. The um the the moment uh there's there. It's funny you said earlier that you you were still calling this a proto slasher, but I call it a slasher. I would call it a giallo, to be honest with you. Okay, okay. I the only reason why I uh, because I I watched this about a year ago and I thought proto slasher, but then I when when was this made? Do you have 79, the production? Seventy nine, but was. But Halloween had already come out, but I don't think that the, I don't feel like it's looking back at Halloween. I, I feel like it's not using Halloween as a blueprint or anything okay. like slasher. Cause they're okay. So there's, there's several elements of this that take it out of the slasher realm in the sense that mm -hmm. even though like there are movies like the Slayer where you have adult victims, that's mm -hmm. not very common in a slasher. That's a giallo. Yes. Um, I think yeah. the way the killings are sort of committed are giallo-esque to me because they're less violent, but they're more creative. Very silly. Some, yeah. yeah. Yeah, creative. Yeah. Creative, but not in like the Friday the 13th creative way. It's like, um, and, and I guess they're not all creative. I mean, there's a choking scene, I think. But like, yeah. um, and it's also about the fashion industry. And so it's like blood and black lace. Oh yeah, okay. You know what I mean. Right. So, so it's I'm actually kind of bending the rules to put it under proto slasher because I wanted. We've been talking since we started this podcast about doing these two films together. Yes. And, and so it was important to me to do that. But the more I watch it, the more I feel like, yeah, it's a proto slasher to me in a lot of ways. But it's probably more of a gallo. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I to me. The, the first time I watched it, I was kind of like proto-slashery, but I, I can see exactly what you're saying about the, the giallo aspect of it. But I, um, uh, and we're going to pronounce that word differently. Yeah, I think uh, so. I don't exactly know how to say it, but. <laughs> I, like to, I like to give it the je kind of thing. Um, but the thing that made me, when I watched, I watched it twice over the past like three days. And it. You, you know, and I mentioned this uh, when we talked prom night and he knows you're alone on Dan's Driving Double Feature, which is a thing I do uh, somewhere else. But one of the things I, I love is that that strange amorphous period in between when Halloween has become a hit in early 79 and when Friday the 13th in the summer of 80 sort of bolts down what slasher films are. 
They're, there are a lot of different things they do, but they're mainly about the body count. And if you can get in the creative killings, you get in the gore. That's what most of them are about. Not all of them. It's like, say, like Humongous, for example, doesn't have a high body count or creative killings or stuff. But that was made by the guys who did Prom Night. And Prom Night was a huge hit. So I feel like they're kind of going off of that. Um, well, Prom Night, though, was after this. Well, well, prom night was made, wasn't it? Made in in late seventy nine. Yeah, but or? but the she's dressed to kill people wouldn't have seen it. Oh no no I don't I don't no no I mean uh, the she's dressed to kill people might have seen Halloween. Yeah, but I don't think it's nodding towards Halloween at all. Oh, interesting. Okay. I mean, hmm. I, there's no element in there that says to me this is like Halloween. Well, what what what? It's to me. Um, and I'll, I'll talk for about a minute, and if I'm completely wrong, we will go on to another topic. But I, I thought, um, to me, it's like there's the, this period where you get um, uh, prom night and Friday the 13th, and he knows you're alone, and terror train, and night school, and all well, that's after yeah. All after she's dressed to kill. Not all of them. Well, uh, all, oh, all right. Yeah, all of them except for Halloween. Aren't those all 1980, like night school and... Um... Well, they released in 1980, but a lot of them were made in 79. Yes, but she's just a kill people wouldn't have seen it. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, I'm sorry, I'm not explaining myself very well here, that I, I feel like Halloween came out and there were a whole bunch of films that were made in 79 and early, early 80 that that uh, what they did was um uh, they they saw Halloween and they were like, okay, well, what did, we can't, replicate the style the john carpenter well, style oh i'm sorry i will say that this movie i put this in the trivia this movie is directed by dress gus traconis i who, met him who oh awesome really yeah, i did when i worked at dave's video back in 1997 he directed he was a customer he directed the evil mm. and i would say the evil is a proto slasher and is more reminiscent of oh, this film, yeah. then she's dressed to kill is reminiscent of any slasher films that came after. Okay. Well, I, 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 I'll just say here's, here's why I thought it was more of slasher than proto slasher. But actually, when you say giallo, I, I think, I think you, you, you're probably actually right there. But um, uh, my thought was that uh, Halloween comes out in October '78 and slowly builds, and then by I don't know what the production time was. No, I don't on, either. Yeah, um, I would imagine summer or autumn of of seventy nine would be my guess for she's dressed to kill. I mean, oh, production. They, uh, I don't know about that because it came out in late seventy nine. It so, was December. Yeah, um, and I I don't know how soon they rolled those movies out after they produced them. I don't know if it was, and it looked cold okay. out. So I could kind of see autumn, but I wouldn't be surprised if they shot it just earlier in the year, like in January, okay. February. Okay. Well, if it's January, February, then everything I'm saying is wrong. Um, but if it's a little later in the year, because I, I always look at it like Halloween comes out and you get all these people s sort of in the like the first half, second half of 79, early 80, uh, scrambling around to try to replicate what they thought was the element of Halloween because they can't replicate the John Carpenter style, the mise-en-scene 
of John Carpenter. So they're all so you get Friday the 13th, which is body count and gore. You get night school, which is um, uh, police procedural. He knows you're alone is uh, the, uh, focus on the final girl. Prom night is focused on the teenage thing. You get stuff like maniac and don't go in the house, which fo- and when a stranger calls, which focuses on the killer. Uh, you get terror train, which focuses on sort of more the mystery. I put it in quotes kind of and, to me, what she's dressed to kill is it focuses more on the mystery aspect of it. Because I think when like a murder mystery, like a good like Agatha Christie is you get 12 people in a house. One of them is killed, maybe two. And the other 10 or 11 are suspects. Yeah, and, I mean, to some degree. Yeah. But I don't think that the mystery, it's not like an Agatha Christie mystery at all, though, because I don't feel like there's much in the way of red herrings with the exception of people already on the mountaintop. Yeah, well, know? that, yeah. Yeah, well, well, that that's 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 what that's what makes it. Uh, it um, uh, to me, what makes it slashery is that in a slasher film, you bring a bunch of people to a location and you kill all of them off, and there isn't much of a suspect. But the thing about this movie is that the killer, very specifically, apart from one exception, is just killing the models. Right. You have all these other suspects. So you have the slasher element of the models are all being killed off. And then you have the murder mystery thing of all these other suspects. So you, you, you this is like them uh, delving into like the a mystery aspect of it. And it, it's it's I it doesn't doesn't quite work. But I, I, I feel like it's it's uh, the joy of it is you get all the killings. But then you get all the murder mystery suspects, too. And and this was a time period where, like I said, everyone was throwing it all up against the wall to see what would make money. And what made money was body count and gore and creative killings. But this one has some of that, but it doesn't have some of it. So you get like – and you get that with the others. Like Night School has some fun killings, but it has all that police procedural stuff, which isn't – as much fun and he knows you're alone which we both love focuses a lot on the final girl which i love but that's but but they don't focus that much on the final girl as the movies go along yeah well this movie this movie too doesn't necessarily it has a final girl but connie selica's character there's no real transformation for her there's no like you know, like the way Laurie Strode goes from being really sure, weak to sure. like defeating the killer. Mm-hmm. Like Connie Selica, I mean, just from the very first scene, we know she knows karate or whatever she's doing in that ridiculous yeah. scene at the opening. And, <laughs> and, and she's very ambitious and sort of pushy and she's a nice and she's person, also, but she's, and she's also, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I feel like she's a suspect too. So uh, I think at the beginning I get that feeling, but I, it, it really dries up for me as the film progresses that, sure, that, of that course, she could yeah. do it. But um, I don't, I guess maybe I, because I know who the killer is, I don't, mm. and I've seen this a few times now, I don't feel like, the only red herring I can think of is the guy that's, uh, the really weird guy played by Jonathan Banks. Sure, yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's the only one, and maybe, maybe Peter Horton's character. Well, what about Gretchen Corbett? She's the ugly no, girl. No, I didn't get that feeling at all from her. That she oh, was... I did. I did too. I, I got. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I, I got the feeling that everyone who wasn't a model 
and also Connie Selica, they were all red herrings except the 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 mom of Gretchen Corbett. I I didn't I didn't feel like, but like the art critic, you don't like women very much, do you? Yeah, I was weak then because like and, like and it's Peter like Horton. Isa Laura Mars. It's like Isa Isa Laura Mars. The only suspects oh, okay. in Isa Laura right. Mars were the male people in it, like the uh, Ms. Maz. I mean, this was definitely riffing on. Um, Brad Dourif. Jonathan Banks' character was definitely sure. riffing on Brad Dourif. Mm-hmm. The only people I thought might be a suspect are the dudes. So, like, I didn't really get oh, a vibe off okay, Gretchen yeah. Corbett. I guess they were supposed to with that whole, you're frumpy. Oh my god, I hate it. Why does everybody have to deceive themselves into believing they're beautiful? I, 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 think, I think there's a possibility that I maybe didn't get the vibe, but I saw what they were up to. I mean, because to me it really does feel like the killing of the models one by one, that's a slasher. All the sus, all everyone else, they're a murder mystery kind of thing. So, well, that's, that's, hey, folks, that's, that's the way it works. You know, Amanda and I aren't always going to agree. Yeah. I, I like just, you, Amanda. I just don't think it's referencing <laughs> slasher films. That's why I don't call it a full straight slasher. I think okay. it, because of when it came out, it, it was just sort of going on its own um, mm-hmm. blueprint that it created for itself. Um, and maybe Halloween had some influence on it, but I, I don't get that vibe at all. And I okay. don't think that there was enough films around there for it to be influenced by slashers. Not, I don't think Halloween was like the... I just don't see the TV execs looking at Halloween and being like, we need to do that. I feel like... Sure. And, I, and I know that there's been more Giallo-esque type... I mean, there's been lots of proto-slashers, mm-hmm. but like uh, Honeymoon with a Stranger and this, I mean, they feel like the same sort of film to me in terms of following a Giallo okay. blueprint. And so Proto Slasher just works like as a good compromise for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I could see Giallo on this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I Well, it was funny because the, the first time I watched this like a year or so ago, I didn't I didn't think at all that it was slasher. But then when I was watching this, I was I was writing notes and I was like, wait a minute. This 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 is in that time period, that amorphous time period where people were just trying every variation so this might be one but it might not be but um uh if you'd like to actually talk about the movie rather than my strange theories uh, we we can do that well tell us what you thought of it so you've seen this a couple times i have i i like it i i think it's um i think it's fun um I, I I would love to see a better version of it because there are several moments where they do Halloween slashery style things where they reveal bodies and I can't quite tell what I'm looking at. Um, and I'm like, oh, uh, who, who is that? Um, but yeah. uh, uh, but I, I think I think it's very, very charming and it has um, it has some fun kills. The uh, the gal who sprays hairspray on herself, but it's yeah. actually like um, nerve gas or something like yeah. that, like a disguise. And um, what what is it? Uh, is it burnt almonds? Is cyanide? It's bitter almonds. And is that what she said? Bitter almonds. It's yeah. it's yeah yeah I think so yeah. Um, and it's funny I. I forget, like in the early 80s, I watched something on HBO. I think it was a, like a Philip Marlowe show, maybe with Stacey Keach. Maybe. I forget. Um, and in one of those, someone goes into a limousine, the doors slam shut, lock, and suddenly a smoke comes out and someone says, and, and someone dies. And then when the cops open it, they're like, what is that smell? Is that bitter almonds? Because to me, it's always like, 
that that's sort of the um, uh, sort of uh, shorthand for uh, like the cyanide. It's mm-hmm. it's bitter yes, almonds. That's right. And but but I always think if I smelled bitter almonds, would I know what that smelled like? I I'm not a hundred percent sure that I know. Yeah, that. I don't want you to test that because it might be cyanide. Yes, exactly. Because what happens in the scene is there's like a guy there, like the stage door Johnny gives Marissa lipstick and she's putting it on. And she's like, oh, this is awful. And he's like, what? Well, it smells like bitter almonds. Well, it's strawberry. And the moment she said it, it smells like bitter almonds, I thought, oh, she's going to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's too bad. But I I, uh, I, I love the I love the the killings are fun in this. Should we, when, when, at what point should we reveal who the killer is? Well, we'll get to that. Let's just sort of talk about the characters okay. because uh, I okay. can't go anywhere on this Without planet. talking about John Rubenstein. Well, I love John Rubenstein, but I can't go anywhere without talking about Eleanor Parker as Regine. Yeah. She's in her own film and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's a godsend. It is one of the best performances I've ever seen in one of these kinds of movies where it feels like she's not even in the same room with these people, even though you can clearly see yes. the other actors because she's mm-hmm. just doing whatever Eleanor Parker wants to do. And it is bad ass. And I, yes. I love it. I love it. Madame Regine restores elegance to the world of fashion. Oh. Well, you aren't forgetting designs by Tony Smith, are you? I mean, I've been, I've been working on this collection day and night for months. The world is waiting for Regine, not Tony Smith. Are you saying you intend to take credit for my designs? Full credit. And if I refuse? Oh, then I'll give you credit, of course. Using your real name, Marvin Bullock. Deserter from the United States Army stockade. Oh, you really are something, Richie. I took you in. I hid you. I fed you. I taught you my designs! Don't get a a flap, darling. I, uh... I I promise I'll mention your name. I'll mention your name. Now, now, please stop pouting. Give me a kiss. Come on, give me a kiss. That's better. I really love her in this movie, and I, I kind of wish that the movie was just her in a room talking <laughs> in a, all of those it's fabulous... It's like a 90-minute monologue. Yeah, saying, wearing those fabulous Trevila uh, designs mm-hmm. that are so beautiful on her. She is so amazing in this film, and her character, yeah. never that never stops. It's that kind of energy. I mean, she tones it down when the murders start happening. She's obviously very concerned about what's happening. She's crazy, but she also understands that people are getting killed in her house, and she's pretty, like, cool about it. You know, like, she's like, yeah, this is a bad thing. But that sort of airiness and that, like, weird... I don't even know what she's doing with her voice there. That sort of floating (laughs) on another planet Uh thing she's doing, it never goes away. And it's so beautiful and she does these things where she'll sit like Indian style on her desk and she'll just look off into space and she'll talk about her fashions and but it's so different from everybody else in the film and nobody else in the film seems put off by it like Mm -hmm. nobody's like this chick is insane 
they do seem a fan of her. Yeah, of the great regime. And it's just such a performance. I've never seen anything like that. Especially because I would say that even though there's a lot of murders in this film, it's a fairly subdued kind of pacing and story. Yes. And and it's very like realistic in a lot of ways in the terms of the characters. Now they're not three three dimensional. They're not as deep and as complex as Five Desperate Women, but there's an mm-hmm. attempt to make them unique and different. And the yeah. actors are dealing with those characters as if they could be real people. Joanna Cassidy mm-hmm. in particular bringing a lot of pathos, I guess, to her character. She's just on another planet. It's like they just they went to Mars and they picked yes. her up. They threw on a Trevila bodysuit and they just dropped her down yeah. into the fucking set. And they said, "Just do it, Eleanor." And she did it. <laughs> and it's like to me, she's a delight. She is the high point of the film, and mm-hmm. and she is the reason to watch it. Yes, I, I I love her because you you get like Jessica Walter in the first like ten to fifteen minutes, and Jessica Walter to me, I, I love her. She's no nonsense. Yeah. And she's like, yeah. And then suddenly she gets a phone call. And who's on the other end of the phone? It's Regine. And Regine is, woo, she's <laughs> floating in space. And it's just like, it's it's such a weird uh, dichotomy of the two of them together. Because during the um, uh, fashion show, it's sort of like Regine off to one side as the models come out. And it's Jessica Walter's character saying all this stuff. This is a lovely dress she's wearing, and it's purple. And purple is a great color. Look at her go. You know, it's like, it's this wonderful. And it's, I don't know. She She's so great in it. And, and the weird thing about all of it is that um, never for one moment do you think that she's the killer. No. And so right. it's weird. It's weird. It's weird because it feels like she's hosting a murder mystery weekend or something. Like you, you feel like she's, she happened to pick this day when this killer is coming after the Barton models to bring all the Barton models up to this, this mountaintop place. And there's, there's sort of a, uh, uh, to, to me, it's when I think about it, it's kind of it's it's kind of fun because it's like if she had called her a month before, maybe a month <laughs> after, you know, it would it would have been different, and it might have been a great show. And I always wonder too: is Connie Selica any good when she goes out? And she, she she is. I would say that. So one of the things that I like about this movie is if I don't know if Kathy Sheriff, who plays the lesbian game hunter person is a real model yes. or not. Um, but, uh, and there's a African American actress in it. And I don't know who she is cause she only has like two lines, but she's like the top model at Barton. And she, yes. she, uh, is there. Those to me are two women who look like authentic models. And I think Connie Selica fit her build and her, her ethereal beauty really look like a model to me. And when she's doing the runway, it looks legit, and I'll tell you, I love my models in peril films, so I can, <laughs> yes. judge, I can judge a good runway shoot when I see one. And I think that they did a really good job, with the exception of Joanna Cassidy. She comes out, and there's no like model walk, and she's kind of smiling, and it doesn't look right at all. But she's mm, like the best okay, actress yeah. in the film, you know what I mean? So, sure, like, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a reason for her to be there. And I do think Joanna Cassidy used to really model which is interesting to me because I don't know that Kathy Sheriff was a model. That's the lesbian game hunter girl, Kate. I don't know that she used to model, but she 
really looked like a model. And there's this really great scene when I think they're between going on the runway and she's wearing this white pleated like evening gown that like I don't know if I can even explain it. It like it's I don't know enough about fashion to discuss, to discuss the way it's cut, but it's got this diagonal cut at the front. So like one side is lower and then it diagonally goes up and it actually goes up to her face. Like the fabric is stiff and it's all pleated up, like almost like an accordion on the way up. Mm -hmm. And then the body of the dress is very figure forming and she's beautiful, this actress. And it hugs her in like all the right ways and it looks like couture because Travila did it and she looks like a model wearing couture and it's the authenticity of it works really well for me. And I actually think that Connie Selica fit personally. I think she fit in really well with that mm -hmm. dynamic. She, she looks good when she, she does it. Amazing. I, she looks like she's she maybe a little too thin for my well, taste, that's a model. but uh, that true, true. Yeah. My, my taste may she not extend to that. Yeah, she has the build mm -hmm. of a of a of all the girls there, with the exception of the African American actress who was probably a real life model. She, um, and I wish I'd bothered to write down everybody's name. Um, she. Yeah, I, me too. I'm look. I'm looking at Meryl right now, and I see everyone's names, but I don't know. Um, she only I has two remember. lines in the film. I mean, it's almost offensive. But yeah. She. She's yeah. the most beautiful woman there. She's the one that looks just like a model. So. Yes. Um, I think Connie Selica definitely. Just her build alone made her model material. But she also, those eyes and that hair. I mean, she's what do you, what? ridiculously beautiful. She she is what do you, what do you th well yeah like I uh, I chatted about Beyond Westworld on my other podcast there and she's wonderful in that but what do you think about her in the opening sequence when Ugh. she does the kung fu with John it's Roost? an embarrassment so the first scene in this movie yes. is an embarrassment. But it's kind of an interesting scene because uh, John Rubenstein's character, who is Alan Lenz, uh, last name made up because he's a cameraman, is trying to take these... I never noticed that. Yeah. Well, Gretchen Corbett brings it up later. But she's... Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. She's, he's trying to get these composite shots of her, and she's never done it. And so she's doing these things that I would do if I was doing composite shots and that she's putting her hands on her mouth. You know what I mean? And like she's doing all the wrong things. And so he's telling her these aren't working for me. And guess what? I have another appointment. So let's just take the best of these and we'll give them to Irene and that'll be the end of it. And so that anger goes into Connie Selica because she's so ambitious. And I think it unlocks something in her, like almost having the opportunity and then realizing she lost it. I think that's the point of that scene. And so, so she already luckily dressed like a kung fu fighter luckily for her yes um, and she's got her shoes off so yes. she's barefoot and she so she's ready that. she's ready for her martial arts close-up and it's a ridiculous shot but what's even funnier is when he takes the photos to irene they're not even the same photo shoot like you can tell it's a totally different photo shoot and like the background is different and and she's perfectly posed in the way a model would be posed not just these high yeah. Yes. Kind of catching her mid kick, and they're hilarious to look at. Like one or two scenes later, because it's so obvious <laughs> that they're not the same photo. But I mean, I think that that's trying to establish her ambition. I don't know that mm. it does it in the right way, 
But I think in terms of like B movie making, it it's fine. It's silly and it fits into the motif of the outlandishness of the film. I think I think to me like I I first off I have a note here awful photos. That's yeah they're they're not it's it's like it's so weird. It's like she 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 gives them she does that flip thing to them that every every woman did to a guy in the 70s like right. where she grabs his arm and flips him over and you can see like it's like three stuntmen did that throughout the 70s it was like oh i got i get flipped today who's flipping me now oh county selico okay i'll do it but the, yeah and the photos and he's taking the photos and she's kicking and stuff and when he's taking the photos you think this is preposterous these photos are goofball. No <laughs> one's ever going to look at this and go, "What? This is a good photo." But he's he's Alan Lenz. He can do anything. He's a he works for Irene Barton. He works I, for the I, number one modeling agency in the country. He makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. Thousand dollars a year. He gets yes. to sleep with every single woman that comes into that office, and that's what makes him the 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 suspect is because I don't know I didn't get a suspect vibe off of him either and I think that's because he has that alter not altercation he has that interaction with Gretchen Corbett I think I got the I got the vibe off of him at the start but then when he begins to interact with Gretchen Corbett who I I'm a huge Rockford Files fan I don't know I'll I'll admit this right now in front of the world I love the Rockford Files and Gretchen Corbett Gretchen Corbett is Rockford's lawyer for the first four or so seasons. Beth Davenport. Yeah, Beth Davenport. And she's also in Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And she is in the Columbo. Uh, oh, yeah, with that's Robert a famous Conrad. scene. That's a famous scene with her, actually. Uh, if you Google Gretchen Corbett, that bathing suit scene is like comes up more than anything else that she's ever done. Yeah, so it's like it kind of puts the lie to the she's unattractive thing. Well, um, but I she, will say Gretchen Corbett, and we're going to talk about Magnum a little later too when we get to back to Kate Bedford's character. Um, sure, okay. But uh, Gretchen Corbett was on an episode of Magnum P.I. And mm. in the episode, she had been a DJ in Vietnam. And um, all of these men who were listening to her voice had fallen in love with her. The episode's called The Look. And the point is is that people build up these images of what she must be like because she has this really sexy voice and she's helping all these men, you know, kind of in this really dark situation. She's sort of this uh, bright light. And I, I, and and I, I have no idea what Amanda looks like, so... So, hmm. well, I'm not, I don't look like Gretchen Corbett, but so <laughs> the, uh, the whole point is is that she says that she always gets the look. So what that mm-hmm. is, is that whenever anybody meets her, with the exception of Tom Selleck, because he never does that to anybody in the show, they look at her because she's not the woman that they had imagined in their mind. Mm. Okay. And she's not as beautiful. And I'm not saying Gretchen Corbett's not a beautiful woman, because she obviously is, but she also can play these types of characters mm-hmm. because she's, like, quietly beautiful. So... Mm. Okay. So I find it offensive that she's being called the plain girl in a lot of levels because on what planet is Gretchen Corbett ever going to be considered plain? But yeah. as an actress, I feel like she's really good at sort of projecting the idea that she might be plain. I can do that, yes. Yeah, yeah. and so the look is a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, here, 
not maybe not so much especially because she's wearing that fabulous white dress i mean she looks really good but so when i think of gretchen corbett i often think of that episode and so i can buy it to a degree but there's some feedback about Mm. that as well i don't think most people find gretchen corbett to be unattractive at all oh yeah there's there she she is also uh like uh julie summers she was in uh ellery queen and she she plays like another gal who falls for Ellery, and they they go on an adventure. And there's a it's the episode I forget the name of it, but it's the one with the um, British um, spy who writes a tell-all novel about people who um, uh, gave up information it, to Nazis and things isn't like that. Jonathan Hillerman on Ellery Queen? He is. Yeah, he's, he's in, in Magnum, he, and they were in Magnum. Yes. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yep, he was in. Uh, he is. I forget his character's name, but there were there were two nemes- nemeses that Ellery had. One of them was played by, I forget the guy's name. He's so great. He was in a Voyagers that we watched for Venture Super Train a few weeks ago. Um, and Jonathan Hillerman is another one. He plays a radio host who does a detective show, so he thinks he's a detective, and so he's always. Uh, thinking he's kind of um, pulling a fast one on Ellery when he says, I know who did this killing, but Ellery wanders in and goes, no, you, it's this person and this person. Well, speaking but, of Ellery Queen, before we get too far off tangent, it's getting late, sure. and so we have to... It is, it is. Um, let's talk about the killer. Yes. So, did you guess who the killer was the first time you saw this? Um, You know what? I... I, I I'm very bad at guessing ki- who killers are, and yeah. I tried not to guess who this killer was. But, but there's something about this killer, and I I would call it his mustache. Yeah, or his that, nose. That, or his nose that made me think this might be the killer. Do you wanna? Do you wanna reveal? Sure. So something that's really funny about so there's this uh, guy. So okay, they're stuck on the mountain. And uh, Kate, ooh, I, who I forgot to talk about, we have to get back to Kate briefly because I, I think I'm going to add a clip to this later. That's amazing that, of her. Um, so, uh, so Kate scales the mountain because she's the game hunter, athletic one, yes, and yes. and she's like, I'm going to get help. And then a couple of days later, I guess the next day, the sheriff cl- is climbing on the same rope because they have to. Because okay, so we didn't explain that you have to get to uh, Regine to uh, tram, an air tram. Yeah. Did you and mention it's, it's, that? It's, I can't remember if you mentioned yeah, that. I did. It's it's like a cable car that you've seen in seventies. I I would oh, yeah. say uh, Columbo. Yeah, you did. Uh, short, short fuse. fuse. Yeah, short I have fuse. A, yeah. I have a list of stuff it showed up in on television. Um, mm-hmm. but it was like a tramway. The air, the Palm Springs Aerial Tramway is, I think, the name of it. And yes. so you you could only get to Regine's house through the tram, and so the tram is not working because there's no power, and so that's why Kate scales the mountain. And then the sheriff shows up climbing the same rope. And I can't remember if he first encounters Connie Selica first, but anyway, he gets up there and he's like, Hey there, little Philly. I'm a I'm a cowboy sheriff now. Cowboy, and, yes. and you're one damn pretty little Philly. And so then like two minutes later she's like, Are you from New York? And he's like I am from New York, but I use this accent because this is a small town and nobody wants a big city sheriff. So I'm the cowboy sheriff and I want to date you. And she's like, okay. 
I and thought it was a, like a McLeod reversal it where was he weird. was in Texas. Yeah. yeah. He was Texas and he went to do it. Plus, they also mentioned Colombo like a minute before that's that. Right, that's so right. So it's like, and, yeah. So. And it was just like, you little Philly. Like he said that, I think at some point, or I said it and I couldn't he, stop I, saying I, it. I, I continue saying it. Your, your, <laughs> I, that accent was I awesome. Really, I really like doing impressions of Cheryl Falsey. So, um, so anyway, as the film progresses and, and people are continue to die, I believe, or something's happening and there's chaos and, and it come to find out that Sheriff Halsey is actually Michael Barton, who was Irene Barton's ex-husband who had died supposedly in a fire after Irene had taken over the Barton Agency. So the Barton Agency had been started by the husband, Michael. And Michael, um, I can't remember if they, I think they were divorced first. They got separated. And I feel like he was dating another model or something. And he came home and she was in bed with another guy. So he torched the place. He'd had it with women. He was like, forget it. I can't trust you. And so he's, I'm going to kill you. So he set the place on fire. And the body that they found of the man in the house, they assumed was Michael Barton. So he was proclaimed dead. And he went ahead and went sort of underground for a while. And then somehow he figured out that Regine was having this fashion show on the mountaintop. Because they put it together really quickly. And yeah. he... He got in his sheriff outfit and he put on a fake nose and a fake mustache and he went um, under incognito as the sheriff and insinuated himself with the group, making them feel safe with him. And then he started using that to like stalk them because I guess he kills Jessica Walter, right, at the house. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and so he's uncovered at the end. And I don't even remember exactly how he's uncovered. I think there's a body being hidden somewhere. Oh, it's Kate's body, I think. And, and then, and then I, I don't know how they end up in the same room. I can't remember now, but Sheriff Halsey slash Michael Barton and Alex played by Connie Selica are in the same room together. And then he confesses exactly what I told you. And it takes him like five minutes to explain. And he pulls his (laughs) nose and mustache off off and he's really handsome. And, um, (laughs) well he is Jim McCollin is a good looking guy. And, um, but you could tell it, something was wrong with him because first of all, they didn't, they never give him a close up. Through the whole mm-hmm. film. And then when you do get a good look at him, it's like a fake, it's obviously a fake nose and a Harry Reams mustache that would only look good yes. on Harry Reams because he's Harry But Reams. it's, yeah, it's it's like a Harry Reams mustache, but with a little bit of like, um, I don't know, like, like Buffalo Bill or something just on the ends. So it's like a little mm-hmm. bit like it's Harry Reams, but then it curls into like Buffalo Bill or something like that. And you're like, no, that's a little, that's a little extra mustache. Yeah, there's, there's too much too going much. on there. And, and then there's like a, there's a kind of a chase scene and like mm-hmm. a little fighting. Cause she knows her karate we've established from the first scene. Yes. And, yeah. And-, and it comes into play really well. And then she, they sort of end up fighting on the tram and she's sort of hanging oh. on the tram and he's hanging yeah. off the wire. And then mm-hmm. he, uh, or the dummy facsimile of Sheriff Halsey falls to its death. And then Connie Selica falls, but she's right above the tram luckily. So on the wire where she's hanging. So she just lands on top of the tram yeah. And then, because luckily they got the generator going like the second. Literally. Yeah, yeah. Like she needed to escape. So it all worked out. And then at the end, cause I want to talk a little bit about Gretchen Corbett and, um, uh, John Rubenstein. Mm-hmm. Then at the end, you know, he had proposed. So, so Alan Lenz rep- proposes to Laura Gooch and, um, <laughs> yeah, I want to play this clip that I really like of both of them. Mm-hmm. And, but, it's ridiculous. Like they don't even know each other. And 
she's for a woman who and let me play this clip first and then we can talk about it because i think it's important to have some context here hold on i can go away if you want me to i uh i just wanted to say I, i'm sorry about what happened down there people in the fashion business can be some of the cruelest people in the world i hate all of you You've created a world in which it's impossible for a woman to be happy unless she deceives herself into thinking she's beautiful. Well, I think you are beautiful. Why should I have to be beautiful? I'm sorry. I shouldn't take it out on you. Oh, no, go ahead, fire away. I'm part of the conspiracy. When I was a teenager, I used to have fantasies that, that all the beauties would get wiped off the face of the earth. And the only ones left would be us plain ones with, with pimples and flat chests. <laughs> Crazy, huh? No. We haven't met. I'm Alan Lenz. Isn't that rather a perfect name for a photographer? <laughs> yes. My real name is Lasky. Well, I'm Laura Gooch. I'm afraid that's my real name. So I think the problem I have with their ending is that you get the impression, this is really the first time that Gretchen Corbett's character has spoken. And mm-hmm. she, there's a lot of strength in there. Like, she's really, well, you know what? Maybe I'm going to change my mind on this. So she comes across as a kind of a thoughtful, strong character who's got a lot of baggage because her mother wants to make her into this beautiful, like, model. And she's really just a beautiful girl next door, which apparently isn't good enough for her mom. And mm-hmm. so she takes her to all these events and kind of forces her to wear a lot of couture and things that don't necessarily look right on her, although that dress looked beautiful. And she's uncomfortable in this, and, and she's really forlorn whenever she has to do it, but she's obligated because it's her mother. And so they're having this dinner. The lights have gone out. People are dead. And um, they're trying to sort of have some sort of normalcy. And the Clive Ravel, who is the bitchy uh, fashion journalist, talks about how the world needs gawky people. And then he toasts Gretchen Corbett's character, saying, thank God we have a gawk here, or something to that effect. And she gets really upset and runs out of the room. So Alan Lenz comes to comfort her. And in the scene, you really feel like she's her own person. She puts up with this stuff, but she understands what it is and where her place is when she goes to these things. And even though it's miserable for her, there's like she realizes this isn't her and she's not trying to be what her mom wants her to be. So there's like an inner strength there that's really appealing. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm thinking about it, so directly after this part where she introduces herself to Alan, like by name, and he tells her she's beautiful, he tells her she could be a model. And she kind of laughs it off. And then he brings out the model in her. And he's like, Oh yeah. Look coy. Do this. And she's doing all of it. And then they stumble on Joanna Cassidy's body while they're doing it. So maybe Mm. it makes more sense that they're getting married. But my impression of Gretchen Corbett was that she was like a really strong-willed character. And like the idea of getting married was like not the end point for her. You know, like she had other fish to fry in her life. But then she's known him like a day. And she's even questioning his um, faithfulness to her. Because there's a scene where she's walking Mm -hmm. outside and she sees him with Alex. And you can tell she's kind of upset. And so she's already insecure about the relationship. And it's been 12 hours. (laughs) Right? And so then he proposes. That's the gooch. Yes. And then he proposes and she says yes. And it feels so out of character for me. 
for that. Not that anything is super in character. I mean, these aren't the these aren't the deepest characters I've ever seen in a film. But mm-hmm. I do think that Gretchen Corbett brings some sort of nuance to the role, so it's easy to feel like there's complexity or texture to it. So she betrays that to me, and not her, Gretchen Corbett, but the character is mm-hmm. be, her portrayal of that character. It it feels be, like a betrayal of how she started in the part to where she ends up. And then at the end of the film, after everybody's died, and it's so obvious that Regine is like, oh my God, this is the end of me. This is the end of everything. Like she, it looks like it's the one time she's not like, oh, Alan, you know? And Gretchen Corbett and John Rubenstein are joking about their time on the mountain. And then they're like, hey, Alex, you want to get a cab? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, that's um Yeah, I I don't think I get it either. <laughs> I never I I didn't quite think of that. Yeah, cuz um it's it's a weird like cuz cuz the um Alex Lens and you know what? I completely forgotten the Alex that his last name was Lens. I I should have written that down. But it's like he just starts off as this l- l- sort of latch who photographs these models and and fools around with them and then get, is given the warning by Jessica Walter you don't want to be given a warning by Jessica Walter that's that's the one thing you should never be given and and yeah it's it's and and he has this 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 thing with Laura and Gooch really Gooch that's a good name to give your character come on I think on. it's supposed it's, to be funny cuz I yeah, it, well, it's like um, I think um, isn't in Mame, you know, the anti Mame Mame, uh, the musical. Uh-huh. I think that <laughs> there's a there's a made character in that. My wife, my wife and I have on our um, uh, DVR uh, Mame, the Lucille Ball film from the yeah. early seventies. Oh, 70s. I had that on Laserdisc. Okay, yeah, and, and there's a character in that named Gooch, the uh, the sort of maid of the house. Oh, and then there's so, so, Gooch from Boys Will Be Boys. That's true. that's true, and then there's um, Pooch. I don't know. That's and a then dog. there's Hooch, which is the name of oh, alcohol. With Turner, Turner and Hooch. Turner and Hooch. Yeah. Oh well, there's gosh, also yeah. Geech Gooch. What was that guy's name from Carter Country? What's his name like Geech Gooch? I want to say Geech Gooch. Yes, I'd have to look that up to yeah. to verify it. I don't want to. I get. Can I? Can I? Uh, I, I've got the I've got the film playing on my left here, and I just watched the scene where Connie Selica um, is is doing her karate yeah. on the hill, and she has the fight with the guy. And does the guy at one point when when he when she begins to fight him, does he say to her, "Come on, bitch"? Do you? Yes, hear that? he did say "bitch" because I I made a note of that. I was like, "Oh my oh. god, he just called her a bitch." Okay, because but, but I, I Ida actually, Lupino was calling people bitches and women in chains in 1972. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, all right, all right. Because I was gonna say, yeah, I wrote that down and I was like, I actually yelled out to my wife, did, I think I just heard this guy call Connie Selica a bitch. He did, he did. What, it surprised me. What does John Tesh think? Yeah, that's not yeah. <laughs> that's not correct. Is she still you, married you, to John Tesh? She is, right? I think so. Yes. Yay. You you impudent little prig. That that comes up. That's a line that someone says. Oh, to someone yeah, it's got on. a lot of good dialogue in it. It's a really yeah, fun. It's, it's trying to capture that sort of cattiness of the modeling industry, and it does it in a way that's so not realistic, but it's really fun. 
and it's 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 so charming because it's on the mountain and it's so isolated and you yeah. get a lot of great shots like Connie Selica talking with the sheriff yeah where they're like they're like on the edge of this um like a uh, uh space where yes. it's like whoa hey we're, there we're... hey hey there little Philly we're on the edge of a space i we're am from edge... new mexico can't you tell and i got to i got to tell you I'm looking at my uh, Merrill, uh, which is the second best reference guide for TV yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah, it's the best. There's a there's a new one out called "Are You in the House Alone," which you should all own. That's the best. the The second best Merrill. I'm looking at his his edition, uh, 80, 64 to eighty six, and I'm on page three seventy five, and um, she's dressed to kill. Um, it has Jim McCullen plays david barton michael barton oh it well it says david barton oh, here. Says michael barton here okay well uh and regardless that might be giving away the game oh ha 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 yeah it probably would because you know this movie had a vhs release so it did actually it was accessible oh, wow. for some yeah i have uh-huh. the v i have the original vhs release of it um Oh, it it uh it was a film that people could access pretty. Re- I think it might even have a DVD release now. That I think about it, but I think it's just a transfer of the VHS. Mm-hmm. That's, that's hilarious. Um, um, yeah, that's. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted real quick. I just was going to talk about Kate Bedford. So Kathy Sheriff, I don't know much about the actress. I really like her. I think she's lovely, but she looked really familiar to me, and I couldn't figure out why. And it was because she was on an episode of Magnum called Skin Deep. And which mm-hmm. is a very early Magnum season one or two, and with Ian McShane's in it, and there's this really great scene at the end where Magnum goes to save her. They literally say the word lover like twelve times in like a three minute time span. <laughs> and if I can get an audio recording of that dialogue, I'm gonna put it on here somewhere because you have to hear it. It's like a drinking game. Aaron, the whole world thinks you're dead. David hired me to find your lover. I don't have a lover. David believes you do because all the weekends that you disappeared. I was here, alone. Now, David didn't know that. He figured wherever your lover was, that's where you'd be. That's why he hired me to find your lover. Once I let him to your lover, then he'd kill all three of us. Look, he can still kill the two of us. And so okay. I didn't make the connection until I looked her up on IMDb. But I just wanted to mention that real quick. If there's any Magnum fans out there, you probably know what I'm talking about. And, um... And maybe you got the same kick out of that scene that I did. I don't know, but um, I thought I'd bring it up. What um, what is the name of your Magnum PI podcast that you're going to do? <laughs> I have no idea because I want to have Riptide in there somewhere. So <laughs> Magtide, I don't know. Magtide, <laughs> I go for that. Rip Mag- Ripmum PI. No, wait. Well, I'm still oh. like I've actually seriously toyed with doing a Trapper John podcast where it would be just like 20 minutes where yeah. I would talk about the episode and who was in it. But the thing is, every Trapper John episode is like the episode before it. Really, okay. I mean, it's really the same thing. And so after like, and that show was on for seven years, and so I can imagine by like the third season, I'm like, oh, Gonzo used reverse psychology again. <laughs> and it what worked. didn't we have? Didn't we have a name at one point for your Trapper John? Gonzo Gogo. Yeah, Gonzo Gogo. Although I'm more of a Dr. Riverside fan, truth be told. Okay, well, we can we can come up with another name. We get we can get some people on it and yeah. work on it. But it's just, uh, yeah, I would love to do a Magnum PI podcast. And I'm kind of surprised somebody hasn't done one yet. But it's eight mm-hmm. years, and 
it that would be a really intense project. Yeah. And also yeah. all the trivia. I don't really have any Magnum trivia, but there's a there's a Magnum PI website that's amazing. And I would feel like I'd just be ripping them off every time I did a podcast. And then that would make me feel bad because they worked really hard on their website. But they have so much trivia. I mean, it's so it's like a rabbit hole. You go in there and you could spend hours, <laughs> hours looking up all of the stuff they have on there. It's so intricate. And I have done that. It's an amazing website. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I would love it if somebody did a Magnum PI podcast because that is the greatest show ever made. So... <laughs> Somebody should be talking about it. Yes, please, everybody. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I'm going to do, and I, I do still promise sometime by the end of the year, rocking all week with you. Yay. The podcast. I'm going to do that's it. That's 11 <laughs> years, isn't it? That's 11 seasons. Uh, yeah. That's intense. That's so, yeah, it's going to be very much. Anyway, I don't want to get too yes. off topic. Um, I don't Victor know. Victor de Oh, what? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if we want to go into any... Is there anything else you want to talk about, like Joanna Cassidy or uh, um, Jonathan Banks or Peter Horton? I think, I th I th I think I'm good. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fun... I, I mean, I, I think talking with you, I, I see it more as a giallo or murder mystery as opposed to slasher, but part of me, the, the stubborn part of me, which actually isn't much, um, says it's a slasher, yeah. but I can see the hollow murder mystery portion yeah, of it. I can, I give it the proto-slasher proto tag. Well, first of all, just to fit it into this feature, but also because I do think it's speaking more to before the blueprint was set. Yes. But I guess yeah. I mean, your argument, though, which makes sense to me, is that, well, aren't all these movies I named also doing that? Which is true because they came out so early in the game. That they were all just doing their own version of it, so you have an argument, an arguing point there, that I would have to think about because, you know, you're right. Something like Night School or He Knows You're Alone, anything that came out in 1980 is really a proto slasher in a way because there hasn't been much before it to give them guidance. They're yeah. just picking elements that they like and working with them. Because, because part of me says, as much as you might want to send me a virtual punch to the face, that that Halloween isn't quite is it's 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 slasher, but it isn't quite because slashers as we know them over the past thirty five odd years are about body counts, creative kills, and as much gore as you can do, and that's not Halloween. That's Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, you're right. Well, I do believe that Friday the Thirteenth really set off. That that's the one, that, and yeah. I always I always look at. To me, I always look at um, the film I choose is to all a good night because if you look at the there's a, a extra feature on the to all a good night Blu-ray, Alex Rebar, the incredible melting yeah. man who wrote to all a good night. He says on the features, he says it was the summer of 1980. We made Demented. We wanted to make our next film. We watched Friday the 13th. We saw how much film, money it was making. And we said, let's make that. Well, we need to pick a time. How about Christmas? Okay, well, we have to have it out by this Christmas. And it was like June or July of 1980. Okay. And they made it and it came out in December. Yeah, that feels so right. So to me, to, to me, that is like, because Night School and, and Friday the 13th, Terror Train and all those others, it's like, okay, we don't know what we're doing. We just, we're, we're doing variations of what we think Halloween is doing. And the one got it right. And then all the other, not all the other, but many of the films following Friday the 13th 
are more Friday the 13th than Halloween. Yeah, for the most part. For the most part. So so that's why I just say with with um, she's dressed to kill that it feels like they 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 took like a mystery element of it. Like, why is this killing happening? Who is this person? And they 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 went with it. So yeah. I, I don't I don't know in full. It's actually more actually when you said Giallo, I'm 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 actually a little more, bit more on board with Giallo, but I semi stand by what I said about slashers. So. Yeah, I, I agree with you to an extent. It's definitely well. I think the thing is when people talk about slashers, they're slashers, and then there's mm-hmm. these things that we create like what's a second tier slasher, what's a and what's a proto slasher, and so like everybody starts creating their own rules for what those are. And people do that with Giallo too. Like I, I know people who will call Suspiria a Giallo and that's because mm-hmm. they just consider Italian horror films as Giallos. Now, if True. you say that to the wrong person and I've seen it online, you will get ripped apart. It's not a Giallo, <laughs> but I get that people sort of take that term and they've used it for their own definition. Mm-hmm. And the, so that's kind of what's happening with proto slashers with a few exceptions. Like black Christmas is a proto slasher. Yes, and yeah. Bl- yeah, Black Christmas I think is probably the closest to what a, a slasher is that I think uh, maybe even more than Halloween because of the way it it has more of a regular sort of body count throughout right. it. Right. Right. Long- so, so like there are movies like that that you can pretty much define it that way. But then there's these little nook, nook and cranny films like Five Desperate mm-hmm. Women, and sure. you can start to pick out elements and then apply them. Um, but somebody else may think that that those elements aren't as important. At, like the, maybe the body count means more to them than the fact that it's yes. not like yeah. stalking scenes or something. So, because um, there's a place, there's a movie, and I talked about it briefly on the Hysteria Continues called No Place to Hide. That really, there's no murder in it at all, really. Uh, but it, the first 20 minutes are like straight up from prom night. Like it's got the killer saying, mm-hmm. saying now, Amy, now, the same way the killer whispers now, or soon, Amy, soon, I'm sorry. The way the killer whispers now, it's got, and he's got the baklava, is that what you call it? Balaclava. Yes, balaclava. yeah, yeah, balaclava. I'm going to edit balaclava. that. He's got the balaclava. And <laughs> no, I don't want you to edit that. I probably won't. Because I love balaclava. Yeah, oh, so I did delicious. that, I did that um, with goulash and galoshes on, on an article I wrote, and I felt really stupid afterwards. So, yeah, <laughs> a balaclava, and I believe it's got that. And so it looks like it's prom night. But mm-hmm. there's nothing else in the film that that you could attribute to a slasher. But there's enough of it that it's on hysteria continues. Yes, you know and, what I and, mean. Yeah, and and I think too, like uh, what we talked about earlier, Clash Reunion Massacre. The middle fifty minutes of the eighty odd minutes of Clash Reunion Massacre is a slasher. Yes. But the, the minutes before it. And the minutes after it are a strange supernatural weirdness. But in the center, there is a slasher. Well, here, and... here, here's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. If anybody out there is listening and they're so compelled, I would like people to send me their criteria for what makes a proto-slasher. And oh, yes. I'll give the contact information out at the end. And mm-hmm. what we'll do is if we get more than one, or maybe we'll just get one and we'll use it, We'll try to apply two TV movies to your criteria. Oh, I like it. I like it. I like yeah, it. and yeah. then we'll discuss those. There's one movie that's straight up slasher, and that's Deadly Lessons. I mean, that's the closest sure. to a slasher. Sure. But I would mm-hmm. like to. I would like to hear about what people think are proto slashers because there's a lot of movies I think could qualify, and there's a lot of movies that came out after the slasher craze that I think feel more like proto slashers because they're edging towards it, but they're not quite there. 
And so I would be interested to see if I could apply some of these rules to those films and then we could discuss them on the yeah. show. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. that might be really fun. Oh, and I'm sorry yeah, I didn't to cut you off. And then we got to do background. Let's do that. We can do background. I was just okay. going to say that I, I think uh, after a couple of years of slashers in the early 80s, I think you started to get some people who did variations try, trying oh, yeah, to. Yeah, for sure. But then you also got people like the Christopher Reynolds who made offerings, who he basically remade Halloween without any of the style. No, but or... it's it's got it's it's the, okay. So offerings I've seen a few times now, but I haven't seen it in years. The last time I watched it, what struck me, and we got to make this quick. What struck me about it is that it's oh, really, sure, yeah. it's a really self aware film. Yes, it's meant to be funny, and mm. I the first time I saw it, I was like, this is just a Halloween ripoff. But I get what they're doing because the, mm -hmm. some of the murder scenes are really funny. Yeah, that's uh, that. Well, that's the one that has. It's got a great fat sheriff. Yes. And 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 it has a kid who, where the fat sheriff says, "What's your name, son?" Ben. Bend over. That's right. He says, that's "All right, right, Ben, you go on and don't <laughs> come back." Bend over. What? No. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of offering. I I, I actually have the VHS of offerings on a shelf right next to me. So I saw that one and thought there was a sort of a strange yeah, uh, it's, variation. It's kind of an interesting film. I kind of like sure. it. So we'll do that when, when Amanda and I do our slasher film podcast, which we don't have a name for, uh, we'll talk about offerings folks, okay. but right now we need to do background. Yes. Fast. So, <laughs> so here's some info on she's dressed to kill. Um, it aired on December 10th, 1979 on NBC. I will say this movie has an interesting um, history with how it aired, and we'll get into that. Um, at When it originally ran on December 10th, 1979, it ran against two, 240 Robert and football on ABC. The football game was the Steelers versus the Oilers. Uh, 240 Robert's a really fun sort of chips ripoff in a way. I think it's created by the guy who did Chips. Um, I have every episode of it, actually. Mark Harmon's in it. Um, wow. Is how long did it run? Uh, maybe a season or so, maybe two. Oh, if it ran for two. I was going to say, if it ran for one or less, we could um, discuss I, it. I think, well, here's the thing. It's repetitious. It's like every episode is oh, like the one before oh. it. But it's a good show okay. because it's fun. Joanna Cassidy's mm. in it, by the way. So she actually ran against herself in 1979. Joanna. That's really weird. Unless, oh, so there were two. So Joanna Cassie play, plays a helicopter pilot in Two Forty Robert, but she was replaced by Pamela Hensley from Matt Houston, so, and from Buck Rogers. So it's possible that that Two Forty Robert didn't have Joanna Cassidy in it. But I'm going to look that up because that's really interesting. Wow. So um, on CBS, it was your typical lineup, which was Mash, WKRP in Cincinnati, and Lou Grant, which is a good night for TV. Let me tell you. <laughs> so the. Uh, uh, the ranking, the, it's been hard for me to find weekly Nielsen's, but I've been able to find how it ranks in this, the year with, amongst other TV movies and specials. So it came in number 139 out of 291 for the 79-80 season with a 15.6 slash 27 rating, which means 15.6 million people watched the movie, and that represents 27% of the households in America. So that's not a horrible number. Not great. no. Not great. Core, yeah. It re-aired uh, in June of 1983 as Someone's Killing the World's Greatest Models. I always wondered if this title was a riff on Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. If you remember that film. <laughs> it's a great film. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it, yeah. The, the title's so similar. And it ended up ranking sixth in the ratings that, that year for that week. Wow. Um, and it came in 94 for the season. 
out of 231 films with a 17.0 slash 31, which means more people watched it on this re-airing, 17 million people, and it re that represents 31% of the households that had televisions. So, um, speaking of models in peril, there are approximately 50 models in peril films that I am aware of. I actually have an Excel spreadsheet of model in peril <laughs> films because I was going to write an article with two other people, and one person actually sent me their stuff, and I never did it. I feel horrible because he worked really hard on it. Um, and some of those titles include, of course, Blood and Black Lace, which we mentioned, The Eyes of Laura Mars, Click the Calendar Girl Killer, and also the telefilms, The Calendar Girl Murders, She Cried Murder, and The Cover Girl Murders. Only one of those is good, <laughs> and that She Cried Murder. <laughs> um, the Cover Girl Murders was a USA original film from the 90s, and I reviewed it on my blog, and I went back and read the review of it to refresh my memory, and... It's a re it's a really good review. <laughs> I hate to say that about my own writing, but it was a horrible film, and and I actually thought what I wrote was pretty good without being like, oh my god, this is horrible. But it's you know what I mean, and so I really enjoyed. It. Mm -hmm. I did it mostly yeah. with images because it's got a lot of good images. Um, the costumes were designed by Trevelia, who is best known for dressing Marilyn Monroe in eight of her films, including The Seven Year Itch and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and the iconic pink dress from the film. Uh, from that film, Gentlemen for Blondes, was, of course, worn by Madonna in the video for Material Girl. He also did costumes for the miniseries The Thornbirds and the nighttime soaps Dallas and Knott's Landing. Um, his actual sketches were used as props in She's Dressed to Kill. So, you know, when Peter Horton breaks into the studio to take snapshots of the yeah. costumes, um, those are Trevelia's actual sketches. Wow. Which is really neat, yeah. And um, it was shot in Palm Springs and at the Palm Springs Aerial Tramway. This tramway was also seen in the telefilm Skyway to Death and Hanging by a Thread, as well as the... Oh, episode. I love Hanging by yeah, a Thread. that was the same location. It was also um, used in the Columbo episode we talked about, Short Fuse with Roddy McDowell, and in a Mission Impossible episode titled The Tram. So that was a really popular spot for uh, filming things. I guess that tram was really popular. Uh, I really like how they shot the when they're in the tram at the beginning, when they're going to Regine's house. It's packed. And then they do an exterior yes. shot, and there's, like, three people. Like, like there's <laughs> nobody in the tram. It's so awesome. Um, this movie was Gus, directed by Gus Traconis, who I mentioned earlier, who directed The Evil. I think he might have directed Moonshine County Express as well. He did a lot of B-movies. Um, and I think uh, that yes, plays... Side hackers. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I think that his theatrical work works in favor of this film, because I think even though this film is flawed and has some issues with in terms of the killer reveal and the mystery behind it, it's got a lot of beautiful cinematic quality to it. And like I was saying about the modeling scenes look really authentic. And I think that Gus Traconis had worked enough in big budget films that he kind of understood what looked really good. And he incorporated it into the TV film. So it felt less flat than it might've felt with uh, somebody else. That's my personal mm -hmm. opinion. Gus Traconis was also married to Goldie Hawn for a period of time in the 1970s. So basically oh. he was a God. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I met him when I worked at That's Dave's right. Video. That's right. You could ask him about City. it. Yeah, he was great. He he would come in and rent stuff, and I'd be like, I, I, I wanted to say stuff like, uh, I, I'm a fan. But uh, we would always talk about whatever movies he was renting, so I, I didn't. So um, cool. He's yeah. a good filmmaker. Yeah. I really like him. Um, yeah. I, I pulled some quotes from a Jonathan Banks fan site. So Jonathan Banks is like the uh, Brad Dourif character from Eyes of Laura Mars. He's like this creepy guy that's like an ex-con that's working for Regine. Mm. And he basically makes Joanna Cassidy have sex with him. And then she gets murdered. And um, he always plays creepy characters. But he's a really good actor. So 
Somebody who runs this Jonathan Banks weird, uh, fan site put up a She's Dressed to Kill page, and they actually have quotes from Variety and the Los Angeles Times. So the Los Angeles Times called She's Dressed to Kill ludicrous but can't be fun. And <laughs> Variety said it was diver- it was a diverting vid pic, despite the, but despite the silliness, the killer literally unma- unmasks for no reason. I don't know why that's only partial that's only partial quote, so it doesn't make sense. But anyway, that was from that site. These home films were really hard to to look up information of. There's no production history that I could find. Mm. So you ready for then feedback? Unless you have last. I words. am. I I don't. Uh, I I will say both of these films are quite enjoyable, and um, I they make a they do make a fun and interesting double feature together. They're very different. One's on uh, an island on the beach. One's on a mountain, and people are getting killed. And uh, I don't know. Well, um, it's it's a it's a it's a fun fun matchup. The connector here is I think the female ensembles. Um, yeah, that are. I think Five Desperate Women does it a lot better. It's it's more nuanced and it's more about developing the characters. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think she's dressed to kill is interested in developing the characters, but this is where I think you can see where the uh, television was really female centric, and this these are really yes. good examples of yes. what they did to get women interested in like basically horror movies where uh, women are getting killed. I mean, you could claim that these are semi misogynistic to a degree, but then at the same time they're they've they're using these really interesting, uh, very diversified sort of characters in both films. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty. It's a pretty interesting kind of thing that happened in TV. Um, and we we'll, hopefully we'll get back to these female ensembles in slasher proto slashers um, because there's there's more, and I'd like yeah. to talk about them. Awesome. Yeah. Let's do. Uh, let's do the feedback. Okay. Great. So here we go. Feedback time. Yeah. Oh yes. So, so we got a lot of feedback this time. We actually have some audio feedback. It's our first piece. Oh wow! Yeah, oh, I'm gonna God. play that in a few minutes. But I'm gonna just start with some. Okay, I want to start with the with the uh, feedback that's actually about the films. We actually got general feedback this time as well. But um, this comes from our friend Tristan, who we know on Twitter. Uh, he's at Tristan Lofting, which is T R I S T A N L O F T I N G. He's a good friend of the show and a good friend of ours. Um, yes. He said hi, Dan. Hi, Amanda, Dan, and Nathan. I I only got around to watching Five Desperate Women. I had a good time with this, even though I figured out from the very early on who the killer was. I blame that on the fact that but... I, I, oh, I blame that on the fact that I grew up watching so much of Robert Conrad. It's like his anatomy is imprinted on my brain. See how this comes up? <laughs> yes. I saw those hands and his stance during the first kill, and I was like, I know who it is. I was hoping for a double whammy, though, that, yes, Conrad would be the killer, but that the other guy would be the escaped prisoner. That would have been really fun. Yeah, wow, very good. Yeah. I love I love the interaction between the ladies and to see my favorites, Joan Hackett, Stephanie Powers, and Denise Nicholas. The revelations and behavior of the characters remind me of the later Friendship, Secrets, and Lies. Yes, which is reviewed on my site. That's a really good film. As a TV proto-slasher, it worked. The kills, despite there being so few, are great, and the POV shots are effective. That ending when he's trying to kill Mary Grace, how the ladies fight back in the aftermath, it all holds up. It's still disturbing as hell. Thanks for reading. Tristan. Well, thank you, Tristan. Um, you know, thank you. It's interesting what you say here, because we were kind of talking about how the ending didn't necessarily satisfy us, but he really kind of liked it. Um, I think he felt that it worked really well for him. Also, he mentioned the POV shots. 
And I'm not yes. sure we talked about that as a proto slasher, but that's definitely like a qualification. Yeah, there, there yeah, there are quite a few uh, very nice POV shots throughout, uh, especially the beginning, the the killing over the opening credits. Although I found it slightly distracting that during the POV shots there are credits coming up. I thought, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe don't do that right there. I, I will say but, the guy who wrote the ABC movie, ABC movie, the week companion book, I think his, his name is Michael Carroll. I read his review of this and that movie, he saw five desperate women when he was a kid too. And that drowning scene like traumatized him. It, yeah, it is. It is actually pretty darn rough. The, the only, the only drawback, which might not be a drawback is that it's clearly, clearly Robert Conrad's butt. And it's clearly. like, as he's at, as he's drowning him, you're like, oh, that's Conrad's butt. Get out of here. And it's Come wet. <laughs> that's yeah. his wet butt. <laughs> his wet butt. That's what he gave us. That's, that's what he a... gave the world. Thank you, Robert. We love Thank it. You, Robert. So you, I, also got, I also got another piece of feedback from Kristen um, Haas, who uh, will talk a little bit about what she's doing in her life oh, yes. at the end of this. Because yes. it's really interesting. So Kristen wrote... Since I got to watch both films, I thought I'd send some feedback since it's been ages uh, ages since I've had some semi-coherent thoughts on TV movies that you guys have been watching. I've ne- I had never seen either film before, but as soon as I saw Robert Conrad's name in the opening credits on Five Desperate Women, I knew I was going to like this movie. We love a good Robert Conrad once in a while. Though he's <laughs> always... Though he'll always be second to Ross Martin in my heart, I do enjoy Mr. Oh. Con- yeah, well, Wild Wild West, I get it. I do enjoy Mr. Conrad's work and the mandatory tight pants clause he must put in <laughs> his every film contract he signs. I don't understand how he moves Ben's over without ripping a seam. Clearly, it's magic. It's the best kind of magic, Kristen. The best kind of magic. <laughs> I realize that Bradford Dillman's character was supposed to be slightly off-putting from the get-go, but if I'd known him for all of five minutes and he made comments about my diet, I would have drowned him. The the women in the movie were truly interesting characters. Here you have these women getting together for a reunion, bringing their shiny veneers of happiness. And then we get to watch them crumble. Even without the added killer in the mix, there was no way these ladies were going the whole trip without some emotional carnage. At least it would have been at least, and it would have been great to watch. You got to know them a little bit and sympathize with them, except Gloria. That's Stephanie Powers. It was totally Gloria's fault the dog died. He wouldn't have been outside if she hadn't been such a petty bitch. I was a little surprised at just how bloodless the movie was. Not that I was expecting excess gore or anything, but even a stabbing didn't generate um, any of that gorgeous 70s fake blood that looks like fingernail polish. Just a little blood at the beginning and the end. So um, I'm glad Kristen brought this up, and I'll get back to her feedback in a second. But that stabbing scene, so Bradford Dillman gets murdered by Robert Conrad. And what upset me about that scene is that when he gets stabbed, you see it. So she's right, there's no blood, but you see the knife go into his body. And I don't remember seeing that on TV before. Yeah, and he he stabs him and then kind of flips him over. Yeah, it's it's it's, brutal. Whoa, what? And you don't see blood, but it's like, what the hell? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was like a really intense scene. So I get what you're saying about the blood, but I have to tell you, even watching this just the other day on my elliptical, I had I was like, whoa, he just got stabbed and I saw it. It was kind of like intense. Um, Kristen's pretty bloodthirsty, though. I as think far she as might be. Counts, I think she so. might be. Yes. The Robert Conrad Omen was right. I really did like Five Desperate Women. I can't say the same, though, about She's Dressed to Kill. 
It never clicked for me. Jessica Walter and Joanna Cassidy were divine as always, but I never truly warmed up to any of the characters. Most of the victims were barely more than names and faces. I felt like everything about the story was telegraphed with all the delicacy of a toddler pounding on piano keys. And really, I find it hard to relate to any movie that would call Gretchen Corbett unattractive and plain. I'm sure Jim Rockford is with me on that. (laughs) Yes. I'm looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts on the film. I hope I'm forgiven for not liking She's Dressed to Kill. Take care, Kristen. And you can find her Twitter at Kiki Writes, which is K-I-K-I-W-R-I-T-E-S. And, of course, we forgive you. I like that people have different opinions about these films. Oh, yes. The only thing I don't like about film reviewing is when you're listening to a podcast or you're reading a review and the person didn't like something, therefore nobody can like it. Mm-hmm. And so they go out of their way to make you feel stupid if you liked it or like, you know what I mean? Like they're trying to, yeah. they're trying to put you down for your opinion and um, there's no place for that. But people disagreeing with things, I'm fine with, obviously. And she brought up some really good points. I mean, she's right. It is really threadbare. It doesn't have the same complexity as Five Desperate Women. Um, but there are other things about the movie that I like. I happen to be a really big fan of models in movies. Oh, I forgot to mention Nothing Underneath. That's like my favorite model and peril film. And uh, so for that alone, for me, made it like more watchable probably than it would be if like I gave a shit about characters and structure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And plot twists mm-hmm. that worked. But um, I just want to see all the beautiful outfits that Trevelia was uh, showing off. Yes. It was good times for me. So um, Kiki, oh, she also wrote PS Five Minutes with Nate is awesome. Thanks for doing that. And we'll be back next week with um, some Five Minutes with Nate. Should be fun. Kiki uh, is doing a Patreon. Yes. And I'll put a I'm link. A, I'm, a follow, I'm, a, I'm on there. Yay. Yeah. I'll put a link up to that uh, on the page when I post this, uh, if anybody wants to go look at it. It is called Murderville. And what I like, so I don't know anything about it personally, but because I haven't read it, but I do know that she's splitting things up. The chapters are episodes, as in television episodes, and that there's going to be a series of these chapters brought together into one story, and then she'll have another story start with different episodes, and she's calling these seasons. And I really Mm -hmm. like that because, you know, I'm a big TV freak, obviously, and so it's kind of neat to see how that TV influence has worked its way into, like, literature for her. And um, so I definitely think it's worth checking out. Um, she's she's really amazing and witty and talented, and so everybody should read her. Yes. Stuff. And most recently, she did an interview with our friend Shannon uh, for oh, Shannon's yes. podcast, oh. The Zero Plus Zero Show, um, which is really good. I listened to it yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of fun. I didn't know that Kristen was a huge Monkees fan, which I am too, so that was really exciting. <laughs> and she talks a lot about her work, so you can hear about um, not so much. She talks about the process, but there's a lot of just her sort of introducing you to the type of stuff she writes, and so it's a really good intro to her if you're not familiar with Kristen's work. And I also wanted to throw a big shout out to Shannon because she actually sent me that theme song I like so much from Coed Call Girl. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she got the whole song for me, and I sent it, and it's on my <laughs> iPod. And I love it. Um, so thank you, uh, Shannon. And um, uh, we have some more feedback here, but here's the last piece that's specifically about um, the movies we watched. So our my friend Paul Freetag Fay, who's actually in the book Are You in the House Alone, um, he wrote, I love She's Dressed to Kill. It's like the TV movie version of Blood and Black Lace, but on a mountaintop and with a fantastic performance by Eleanor Parker. One of the few made-for-TV horror flicks I saw as a kid and one it took years to track down based on half-remembered scenes. So, 
that's kind of interesting. He brought up the blood black lace correlation there too, yeah. which yeah. I see. Um, and uh, I'm glad he liked it. I don't know if he saw Five Deaths for Women, but he has great taste in film, so I'm sure he would have loved it if he had. <laughs> um, so we're going to listen to some feedback from our friend. I oh, hope wow. I get his last name right. It's Kevin Batchelder, and I think he actually says it on this piece of feedback. So here we go. Hello, folks. This is Kevin Batchelder. I wanted to give you some feedback about a couple of your episodes that I've listened to. I haven't listened to a lot, but I have listened to a few, and I, I wanted to share some thoughts. I'm a fellow podcaster. I do some podcasts on uh, sci-fi and fantasy TV shows, um, as well as some B-movies in the sci-fi and fantasy genre. So while I haven't listened to all of your episodes, I have listened to a few. Uh, specifically, I found you folks uh, from uh, Amanda being on the uh, Kolshak Tapes podcast. Uh, the Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, those are some movies that got me very much hooked on the sci-fi and fantasy genre when I was younger, preteen. Uh, and, uh, you know, I listened to that podcast, heard her on there, and really enjoyed uh, the info she shared, so I came over to check out your podcast and certainly listened to your episode about those two movies. And also recently your one on Gargoyles. And I really, I, not only did I enjoy them, you two have a great style talking things through. I love the depth you go into. You have a lot of fun. You have a very positive attitude, um, as do I when I cover my shows and films. And as you brought up, not all podcasters do. Uh, I need to do some writers, right? Some folks just feel like they have to bash or trash things. But I very much appreciated your approach on those and certainly remembered them, the films, and enjoyed the podcast. So I really appreciate you doing them. I know how much time and effort goes into doing podcasts, so... Uh, thank you very much there. It's actually kind of funny as as far as uh, uh, being uh, somewhat similar. The podcast that I did for B-Movies, it's kind of on hiatus at the moment. It was called uh, the Saturday B-Movie Reel. And what I started out covering were the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. They're Saturday night um, cheesy B-Movies that just air on TV. I probably covered about 100 out of the 200 they've done. Kind of branched off and started doing other B-Movies. And currently that uh, podcast is... Uh, on a hiatus as I've been focusing on some other podcasting uh, projects, only with only limited time. But my point was, again, being TV movies, most of those, obviously, uh, sci-fi, getting the airing rights, uh, much like the films you're covering, we know these have a different budget, a much shooter, excuse me, much faster shooting schedule. So certainly, and you brought this up in one of your discussions, you do have to look at those films a little differently when you go to review them versus the big budget Hollywood stuff. So understand that completely and appreciated that you brought it up and discussed it so again just wanted to take the time to reach out say hello i've appreciated some interactions on twitter when i've mentioned i'm watching some of the films or listening to your podcast both of you have replied we've had some great discussions so i really appreciate your interactivity there as well so again appreciate it i'll keep an eye out for some of the other films you're covering uh and uh, looking forward to listening to some more so again a big thank you and i hope you take care Thank you, Kevin. That was a really, really nice piece of feedback. Um, yeah, thank you, Kevin. Thank you. He has a really nice voice, so his podcasts are probably really good. And now, what I did was, <laughs> what I did was, I meant to copy the links to the podcast, but for some reason, when I copied and pasted it over to my document, I only got the titles. So I'm going to post the links to his podcast as well with Kiki stuff. Kiki, I'm sorry, Kristen. Kiki writes stuff. Um, <laughs> And it's getting late. This has been going on for like three Yes. Years. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, let me just tell you the names of his podcast. Now, he said the Saturday B-Movie Real podcast is on hiatus, but it covers Sci-Fi Channel and other B-movies. 
And um, I'm and obviously it has a huge backlog, so people should check it out. He also does something called Tuning Into Sci-Fi TV podcast, which covers all genres of TV shows, and Tales of the Black Badge, a Winona Earp fan podcast. Now I'm not so familiar with Winona Earp, but neither am I. That sounds but I know I know of it. But yeah, okay, cool. So and I will post links to his podcast on the page if anybody wants to check out his stuff. Um, and also a big thanks. Thank you for listening. Um, and I'm glad we met each other on Twitter as well. I really enjoy talking to you. So feel free. Anybody who wants to talk to me, I think my handle is at made for TV mayhem and, um, I'm up for talking TV movies. People think I'm joking, but I'm up for it <laughs> at any time. Uh, she you is, know, she is. Because one of the things that people inevitably do when they ask me, when they want to talk to me about podcast about TV movies is that they always bring up a movie I've never heard of. And, it, and you know, there's 5,000 TV movies and I know like a thousand of them probably really well, but then the rest of them are all like just clouded in my head. And like, you're going to ask me about a movie. I have no idea what it's about, but then I'm going to remember it and I'm going to think about it and I'm going to seek it out if I can. And uh-huh. um, I'm going to learn about a new TV movie. So I don't mind like being taken out of my realm. As a matter of fact, I prefer it. But I also love to talk about the classics and my favorites as well. So um, feel free to look us up at any time. Um, and then we got a piece of feedback from somebody named Dave. Uh, he wrote, Hi, Amanda, Dan, and Nathan. I just wanted to say thank you for such a fantastic podcast. I appreciate the time and effort you put into each episode, which is always full of insight, laughter, and entertainment. Being a child of the 70s myself, I have fond memories of these movies and look forward to hearing what made-for-TV gems you'll come up with next. I travel quite a bit, and your show and other related podcasts have given me hours of enjoyment. Thanks again. Sincerely, Dave. And then he put in a PS here. Can't wait to buy your book, Amanda, and your upcoming book, Dan. Congrats. So I emailed him and told him your book was available, and we'll promote it at the end as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. So, yeah, he's a really cool guy. So, and then we we heard from somebody who I think came over from the Stereo Continues. His name is Ara Alishan. And if you listen to that show, you've probably heard it. Um, He sent Mm. me a message on Facebook. Um, And he wrote, hello, I discovered your wonderful podcast around the Halloween episode last autumn, but only recently began browsing through your back catalog. I'm writing in tonight to let you know that Made for TV Mayhem has become one of my favorite listens and has secured a spot alongside the Hysteria Continues and the Retro Movie Love podcast. Yay! Oh, I'm humbled. I love both of those so much. As a Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying, yep, yep. That's (laughs) agreed. Agreed. As a father and a social worker, I felt heartbroken after listening to your discussion about Born Innocent. I currently work with adults but spent some time with the Department of Children and Family Services and could share some horror stories about the system and the irreparable damage it does to so many families and use. I think I'll spare you the details there. Um, there are many things I'd rather forget myself if I could. I found your episodes to be quite informative, and the chemistry between Amanda, Dan, and Nate is undeniable. Though I have to, though I have to admit, there have been a few occasions where I've forgotten that Nate is there until he's <laughs> asked to voice his opinion thirty minutes into the episode. Please don't take that as a criticism, um, as little quirks like that only adds to my overall enjoyment of the show. I've been meaning to write in and ask you, uh, ask your opinion about the 1988 remake of I Saw What You Did. But coincidentally, mm. Amanda and Nate discussed it briefly during Amanda's recent guest appearance on The Hysteria Continues. I would still love to hear Dan's thoughts, assuming he's seen it. Have you seen it? I saw it when it originally aired with my sister, but I have not seen it since then. I remember enjoying the heck out of it because I, I had seen the William Castle original. Yeah. 
about a year or two before, like at a four in the morning airing. And when they announced the, I saw what you did on the TV movie schedule, I, I remember saying, oh, I bet this is a remake of that movie I saw. And we watched it and I, I remember us loving the heck out of it because we also watched Don't Go to Sleep together oh, wow. when it aired. So so I remember enjoying the heck out of it, but I have not watched it since that. Yeah, it's a long time ago, but I do remember liking it. That's a movie we definitely need to cover. I rewatched yes. it a yeah. couple years ago um, when I was still living in Pittsburgh. And I hadn't seen it since it originally aired. And oh my God. It is so good. It is so oh, good. good. It's. I feel like it's really. It's directed by Fred Walton, who did. You oh know, yeah. When well, a stranger yeah. calls in April Fool's Day, and when a stranger calls back, and so it's got a lot of prowess behind it. It's really, mm-hmm. um, it's really slick, and it's got some really really amazing acting in it, and it's creepy. It's a really effective film. So mm-hmm. that's one I would definitely like to cover. I think we could have a lot yes. of fun with that. Um, uh, Ara continues. I had only discovered the mo- the movie fairly recently while reading up on the original 1965 version and watched it on YouTube with my wife. I honestly lost count of how many times I turned to her and said, that's the girl from The Blob, and that's the girl from Wishmaster. At least I was able to resist reminding her about Candace Cameron's role on Full House. We were both disappointed to find that we wouldn't be able to add a physical copy of I Know What You Did to our collection as it never received a legitimate DVD release and probably never will. Well, I think I've rambled on enough. Thank you for doing what you do. Your local list, your local, your loyal listener, Ara Alishan. Thank you, Ara. That was really, really nice. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That was some really, really nice feedback. I think that's the most feedback we've had in a long time. And that's probably because Dan and I have been promoting the show on the podcast circuit. Yes. And um, I don't know that I've done anything really since I got back from London in terms of podcast I need to I do have one podcast I don't actually know the name of the person's podcast but he just sent me the links to them and I'll go ahead and post them on the page here when I post um this episode uh he it's an Australian guy who uh contacted me who I met at Monster Fest who wanted to talk to me about TV movies really really nice young man um and it really knew he's a young man he's a nice young man he's a young man he's so young he's so he we were talking and you know you can see the person's image on the Skype thing and uh-huh. he's like, you know, I'm not a 19-year-old university student because he's in university, but he's older. And I'm like, you're 25, dude. <laughs> I can tell by looking at this picture you're 25. <laughs> but it's so cute that he's like, I'm not 19. But he was telling me, he said, I did a lot of research for this podcast. He's like, I watched four TV movies. So I was like, ooh, he watched four TV movies. That's so exciting. But honestly, every TV movie I brought up, he knew. Oh, yeah. So he said he he did. He did lifelong research. He knows his TV movies. And it was really interesting to talk to him. He's really into the art of cinema, like the technique. And he went on this tangent Uh about how editing can be a 3D process in terms of texturing the the editing into like these layer. I didn't fully understand it. It was really esoteric to me, but it was fascinating. Uh He's a really, really a cinephile, really cool guy. Um, uh-huh. so I'll post links to that. And of course I did this Derry continues recently and I know you did shockwaves. I can't remember if you did that before yes. or after we did. Our I last think, podcast. I, th- I think it was after, because I remember saying to them, I'm on made for TV mayhem on the last episode. We talked a Tory spelling double feature Yay. and, um, and, and I actually gave, um, Ryan Turek, Turek, yeah. um, the head of development at Bloomhouse. A uh, copy of your book, and he said, "I'm taking this home." I wish and I'd I known like, that because I saw him at Texas Frightmare, and I did. Yeah, he came up to me. He remembers me and David because we used to know Ryan 
like very casually in LA and I'm not sure he even knows my name, which is why I would have said mm-hmm. something to him. Um, but, uh, he came over and he's like, Hey, what are you guys doing in Austin? And we talked to him for like 30 seconds. He did some panels, um, mm-hmm. that were amazing. He did the Fright Night panel and I think he did the Thing panel and, oh, um, well, I sat in on both of those and he did a really good job. His podcasting partner, Elric, did mm-hmm. the Suspiria panel mm-hmm. and I did introduce myself to Elric. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's a nice guy. Yeah. I was, yeah. when I did Killer POV a few years ago, I was, I was there with him and he had the sort of the diner slash restaurant, um, jump cut cafe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I didn't realize yes, that was his. Which I went to a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was on shockwaves with, uh, Ryan and Rob, who's also shockwaves and Blumhausen, who was, uh, over my house, uh, right before Christmas, we watched, we watched one of Jerry, I'm not, uh, is it, is it, uh, what's his name? The, um, ah, crap. The guy who did the, um, all the Mexican films that, uh, he dubbed into English, Santa Claus, Jerry Warren. Is it Jerry Warren? I forget. Norman Warren? Um, nor, no, no, not Norman Warren. Okay, he was I'm a sorry. British guy. Okay. So, so he was, I, I forget his name, but he did the Santa land trilogy of shorts that aired in the fifties. And okay. Rob and I, we ate fake tacos, which is soy meat tacos, not real meat. Um, and we drank some beers and Rob brought a great pie. He brought a really great pie and we watched the Santa land, the first one. And we watched blast of silence, a, uh, film noir from the fifties or early sixties, which is directed by Alan Barron. And if you're a love boat fan, Alan Barron directed a lot of love boat. Awesome. It does episode. have a noir quality to it, doesn't it? Yes, it really does. So, <laughs> so it was like, so it was, it was Ryan and Rob and my friend Scott Reynolds, who's a writer for Marvel comics, uh, the Marvel like um, Netflix shows, Iron Fist and Jessica mm-hmm. Jones, and we talked double features. And at the start of it, I said, "I'm on a podcast called the Made for TV Mayhem Show with the astounding Nathan Johnson from Hysteria Continues and the." Almighty Amanda <laughs> Reyes and I handed him a copy of the book. So yeah, well, thank cool. you. Yeah, yeah, yay! Um, <laughs> so I'll post a link to that podcast too, so people can access it. Um, and this story continues. And I think that's it. I think I also post a link to my blog because before I went to London, I did a huge amount of guest spots on podcasts. And, um, and I have them all listed on a blog post I did. So if anybody's interested, I'll be honest, it was all really exciting, but I repeated myself a lot because I was talking about a lot of the same films because those were the films that were on my mind because I was putting the presentation together. And so I talk a lot about Denise Nichols being the, um, (laughs) African-American prostitute final girl. I mean, I know I mentioned that a lot, but I also did a Columbo guest spot. I was on the just one more thing. You did. That was good too. Yeah. Uh, I loved doing that. So there's a little variety in there. Um, so there are interviews and then there's guest spots and you can check all that out. Um, I just want to promote a couple more things. Then we'll talk about Dan's book and my book real quick. So some things that are happening, um, that I think are really interesting. And I think I mentioned this before we left, but my good friend Lee Gambin, who lives in Australia, is starting a film journal called The Cinemaniacs Presents. And it's a really interesting project. So it's not just a film journal, like a general film journal. He's really interested in interconnecting themes to get people interested in different genres of film. So Lee is really interested in every kind of film possible. Like he loves horror, but he's really passionate about musicals and all other kinds of genres. So he got this idea 
that he would pick a theme instead of a genre, like, per se, or for an example. And he would, um, like, this time it's going to be Scarecrow. So I'm going to be writing about Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. So the point is, is that you see this film journal and you think to yourself, oh, here's a review of Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. And then as you're reading it, you see there's an article about the Wizard of Oz. And then you think to yourself, oh, this is interesting how this is, like, connected to the Scarecrow. And, oh, this is an interesting essay. Maybe I should see the Wizard of Oz. And so it's, or the whiz or whatever. And so it's meant to get people interested in looking for other types of films instead of what is in their sort of normal comfort space. And I'm really excited about it because I think that's really unique and fascinating. And I, and he's a really good writer. And he's also brought on, he's in the book, by the way, he's in my book. Um, he also brought on um, a bunch of amazing writers. So it's going to be really interesting. Um, and I think the writing is going to be superb. And I think everybody should support it. Now, there is a Facebook page for it. I think it's just called Cinemaniacs Presents. So you should sign up on that. I think he's expecting the journal to come out towards the end of the year. So everybody should maybe get on that page and you can follow it um, if you're interested. Also, I contributed to a book called Yuletide Terror um, that is being put together by Spectacular Optical. Uh, which is a really amazing um, independent publisher. And it's going to just be about all stuff Christmas horror related. And um, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't think they've released a chapter list yet. But my uh, chapter is obviously TV-centric, although it's not TV movies. And um, I, had a, I had a lot of fun writing it. I really went out of my comfort zone because I wrote about a topic I'm not that familiar with. And so I spent six weeks like just researching and researching and writing. And I think it's going to be a really good piece. I think I now I know who else is contributing and you can go on Spectacular Optical and look at it. But it's the girls from the Faculty of Horror are two of the contributors. Oh, um, wow. My friend Lee who's doing Cinema Cinemaniacs Presents. I think Zach Carlson who used to be a programmer here at the Alamo. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, Zach. Yeah, and yeah. so um, I'm really honored to be in it. I, I've never imagined I'd be in the same pages as, like, the girls from the Faculty of Horror because I admire them so much. And I don't know how well my chapter will read against everybody else's, but it's it, it was really exciting for me. So that's coming out at the end of the year. I think they're going to do, like, a Indiegogo or Kickstarter for it. And all that is is, like, basically you pre for the, pre prepay for the book first to get your copy, and then that ensures Kayla can pay the writers and I'm sure there'll be other things with perks and things like that. But um, it's a good way to get the book as a pre-order and to also support paying writers because that doesn't happen a lot in publishing anymore. That doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. No. yeah. So um, she's got a really good system working out. And all of those books that she's released so far, they've had two that I can think of that are really amazing. So it's going to be really fun. And, um, and yeah. I, I actually know that Kayla brought on a friend of mine later to do some capsule reviews. But I don't know how much information oh. has been released yet. But anyway, it's it's going to be neat to be in this. Right. And and so why don't you go ahead and tell us about your book, and then I'll talk about mine for two seconds because everybody's sick of hearing about it. So tell us about your book. Oh, yeah. My book is uh, it's uh, 80s action films in the rough. It's, um, it is, uh, covers 80 to 89. Uh, and it is 200, approximately 284 reviews of low-budget uh, action films from the 80s. And the sort of criteria for me was no big blockbusters, no Schwarzenegger, no Stallone, no Chuck Norris, no Steven Seagal, stuff like that. It starts like – it starts to do to cough. And then sort of goes down from there. Although I love Dudikoff. I don't know when I, I say goes down. I just mean that like budget level. Well, and so you get. How much, how much Gary Daniels is in there? 
I'd have to look. I've, I've, I'm drawing a blank at the moment, but there's some. Good. There's definitely okay. so there's a lot there's a lot of low budget ninjas in the early eighties. There's a lot of um uh, sort of Bruce ploitation that that leaked over from the seventies and you get the Conan Barbarian stuff and uh the ninjas hit and the Rambo and you go to Indonesia and we go to Hong Kong and we go to Italy for post apocalyptic. And so so far the, the the folks that have read it have seemed to have really liked it. I had a very nice review on Ah, crap, I can't remember what site it was on, but if you look up 80s action films in the rough uh, reviews, it was, uh, it was, uh, I don't remember what it was on, but it was a very nice review oh. from a gentleman who, who said um, something like, uh, you know, because um, it's from McFarland books and the McFarland books aren't always cheap, right. unfortunately. And and so he says something like, this isn't cheap, and if you're looking for an action film 80s book that has Schwarzenegger and Stallone and the big blockbusters, this isn't the one. However, and then he's, he had a great line that was something like, I love this book like I'd love it my ch- my own child. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet. And then, and then he called me out, yes, Matt Keimber or Kimber? The guy who made Witch Who Came from the Sea, Yellow Hair in the Fortress of Gold, um, a Lady Coco, a Butterfly. He's made a ton of films over the 70s. He's a great filmmaker, very uh, fun. I always thought his name was Clymer. So throughout the book, I call him Matt Clymer. Oops. And, and, and he says, and he calls me out and says, uh, I like the film so much that I will forgive the fact that you call him that you call Matt Kimber, Matt Kleinberg five or six times. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, that was a proofreading uh, mistake on my part. But it's it's so far the folks who have read it uh, seem to like it. I've got a lot of nice reviews. Uh, Fred Edelman from Critical Condition, who I'm a big fan of, and I um, uh, sort of the first sort of kind of published thing I had out back in 1994 for his in Critical Condition, I reviewed... Um, Carnival of Blood from 1970, which we talked about so long ago, if you remember the beginning of this episode. And we talk, I did a review of Girls' Night Out, which I also talked about, and The Burning Moon. And I did a top 10 slasher film songs. Uh, and he published it in his uh, fanzine back in 1994. Oh, cool. So he's been a, yeah, he's been sort of a supporter of mine for ages. And I, he, he, a bunch of the images in the book come from his private collection. Oh great! And and so I sent him a copy, and he he loved it, and it, it, it had some nice reviews. And so far, eighties action films in the rough by Daniel R. Budnick. Look Yay. it up; it'll be Yay. fun. Yay! It's on Amazon. Yes, um, yeah. And then my book is called "Are You in the House Alone?" A TV movie compendium, nineteen sixty four to nineteen ninety nine. It's been getting some pretty good uh, reviews in terms of just people have been posting on my social media, you know, them holding the book and um, saying mm-hmm. that they're enjoying it. And that's really, really nice. Um, uh, you can leave an Amazon review. I wouldn't mind that if you did, but it's really nice. I, I left one. <laughs> but you're a contributor. That's actually a conflict of interest, Dan. To be honest. <laughs> I, did, I, I haven't told anyone until right now when you said that. But now, so now the witch hunt starts. Oh, boy. I also have an interview coming up in a print magazine. Um, And I'm not going to say too much about it because I'm not sure when it's coming out, but I'm turning in everything soon. So um, that just reminded me of it. Uh, But anyway, um, it is available on Amazon. It's not expensive at all. It's less than $20, I think. Uh, 
And if you're interested at all in TV movies, and there's a lot of variety in there in terms of not just what's covered, but the way we cover it. It's like 70% reference material, but there are essays in there. And so you can get a look at the different ideas and themes that were going on in the 70s. And uh, it's, it's a book I would like everybody to pick up if they are so inclined. Yes. So um, I also want to tell everybody what our next films are going to be. And I guess I'll give out our contact info, which I forgot to write down again. So you're going to have to bear with me because I can't really remember it. Um, I don't remember it either. Yeah, no. Well. Shit. I hate that I do that. So... It's summertime, school's out, and I think we're going to celebrate with two sort of teen-centric uh, TV comedies, TV comedy films that I, I remember loving. One I just saw recently, and I, I really enjoyed it. The second one I haven't seen since it originally aired. And it's also going to be centered on Michael J. Fox. It's about time we talked about Michael J. Fox, because <laughs> after John Ritter, he's probably my favorite guy on television. Um, I think he's amazing, and his TV movies were really fun. So we're going to talk about High School USA and Poison Ivy. Um, I'm so excited. Those are two movies that I, I remember really loving. And I know High School USA held up, so I'm excited about that. Plus, it's got, like, Tony Dow in it. And we can talk about how I so sexualize Tony Dow all the time. So <laughs> that should be really fun. Um, and if anybody wants to get in touch with us, I guess I'll start with the easiest one. You can go on our Facebook, which is just the Made for TV Mayhem show. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Made for TV Mayhem. I can't remember our Twitter handle for... The podcast, but I think it might be TV Mayhem Podcast. And yes, it is okay. at TV Mayhem Podcast. Woo! Yes, and is. I think that might be our Gmail. That sounds correct. Yes, TV Mayhem Podcast at Gmail dot com. Now, if you, that doesn't work, you just drop me a line on Facebook. There's a little place to send messages yeah. there. And Dan, what is your Twitter? At Danny Slacks One is my main Twitter. My, my other podcast I do is uh, eSuperTrain at eSuperTrain1 for Venti Super Train. We are right now discussing, uh, I just started discussing The Immortal, the 1970 Yay. TV show, Christopher George, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Amy the Conqueror, our good friend from Podcast Mania and I, are still knee-deep in Voyagers. And uh, the great uh, Rob Kelly from uh, Fire and Water Network and Aquaman Shrine and I are almost done with Police Squad. And there is a new show lurking, which I think you folks will really enjoy. So Exciting. But that, yeah, that's I, I think yeah, I know. I think I know what that one is, actually. Um, I think you're pretty fairly certain what that show might be. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. So Yes, I I will tell you. Yeah, the um the my guest host on that is very enthusiastic. Ooh. Which is awesome. Yay. <laughs> so, I'll put up links to those for you as well. Let me write that down because okay. I forget. Yeah, there'll be a lot of links on this podcast post. So, on my on our page that I have where I upload the audio, um, I have all these little things I've started that are like little columns like podcasts we love. And I know the Strange and Deadly Show are on there. And I know Allie's Young and the Restless podcast are on there. By the way, did I tell you oh, Tom, Tom Elliott from the Strange and Deadly Show was fucking hot? Yeah, you told me okay. he, was, he was pretty gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that again. Okay. So, um, and we have maybe the Stereo Continues on there. But I want to add more podcasts. So I'm going to do that for everybody. Um, that has a podcast that has sent us some feedback if I can gather all that together. Um, and I, maybe we'll make a page out of it instead of a sidebar. It depends on how long it goes. Yeah, and, I'd, I'd like to, if, I'm, oh, if we could, I'd like to maybe add some of Rob's 
because he's he does police squad with me okay. i'd like to add some because he has some fun fun podcasts okay yeah sure we can do that and so um i i know i think that there's a pretty good community of podcasters here uh, i think we've connected really well obviously with this Derek continues and with uh, Strange and Deadly show and to some extent with Ancient Slumber I know Myron listens to us and of course sure. Gore Blimey and the Trilogy of Terror podcast and that can always be expanded um, I really like our little network mostly because Tom Elliott's in there and he's really fucking hot but there are other people there that are worth uh, mentioning. Um, I haven't seen them, but I can imagine them in my mind. <laughs> I'm kind of wow. just, I'm sort of teasing. I'm sort of teasing because we were joking around about like, am I going to say how hot he is? And I, so I thought I would over overemphasize it, but I wasn't really sure where to put it in there and not sound horrible. So I thought if I just threw it in at the end for fun, it would be cute. But um, but he's he is a really handsome guy and he's really nice. Um, and everybody should listen to the Strange and Deadly show because it's amazing. And they're coming back next month. Yes, and and Tom's a, a Twilight Zone podcast. I'm oh, a huge Twilight fan. He does a right. gorgeous job on that. Yeah, he he's does. gorgeous, and his show is gorgeous. He's perfect. So like, he's perfect. You should not be listening to us. You should be listening to whatever he's doing, and forget about everything else. Just lock yourself in the room. <laughs> turn down the lights. Keep your hands above the sheets. But enjoy the show. That's <laughs> love to see. And Chris, we love you all. Of course, we love Please. Chris. Chris also has a very yes, beautiful yes. accent, and I'm sure he's yes. adorable as well. I just haven't seen him, but um, yeah, exactly. But anyway, all of these podcasts have been—they've been really supportive of us, and um, and so have so many others that I've just mentioned. And so I think it's time now that I'm done back from London and things are starting to quiet down a little. A little. I'm still pretty busy, but um, I okay. would really like to concentrate on um, making these networks uh, bigger. And more community driven because that's always been really important to me. And there's been a lot of people like I did a, a podcast for supporting characters, which is this show where they just interviewed oh, me for like so three good. hours. So yeah, good. it was fun. Yeah. And you know, a lot of those people that he interviews are really amazing and they've come and friended me on Facebook and they're not so much podcasters, they're writers and stuff, but they're really inclusive and it feels good when like somebody who you've admired their writing comes to you and they talk to you on their thing and you can talk about all these films that you love and I would like to be able to do that with these other podcasters so so that's my big goal for the rest of this year for you guys and also to get back to blogging because I really miss it um so I think we've gone on long enough yes may I may I, sorry may I I, I just why? realized one, why? one more thing is it about Tom being hot it's it's Tom is gorgeous, and he <laughs> said to me, Dan, you need to mention the fact that you have a podcast called One Minute with Night of Horror oh, right. that is about to post episode 73, which is the final episode. That's insanity. We only have like 23 of these podcasts, and it's taken me two years to get there. And you started Night of Horror like six months ago. In December. Ago. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, well, well, those are only like 10 minutes it's, each. It's but, ridiculous. But, but yeah, the, oh, I'm sorry. I just accidentally kicked my dog, and she barked at me. I'm sorry. One minute with Night of Horror. I um, uh, I think by time this goes up, the 73rd and final episode will be up. We have I have gone through all 73 minutes of the movie that might I don't know. Apart from last year at Marion Bad, might have the least amount of anything happen in it, and. I'm just at the end of it. I just wanted to say it because I think I'm going to do another one. Oh, fun. Soon. soon. Yeah, soon. that'll be great. Okay, so yeah. Uh, I'll try to get all that information on the notes or at least on the 
on the website so that people can start to access these things easier. Because um, I, I always say I'm going to post stuff and I never do, so I really want to start working on that. Um, so we're just going to close out with the end theme that Dan hates from Five Desperate Women and that I love. And if anybody wants to send us feedback about what they think about it, I would love to hear your opinion. So I just want to say good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. Good night, everybody.